Welcome to episode 7 of the AWS What's Next podcast, in which hosts Nick Walsh and Robert Zhu share the latest news and launches from Amazon Web Services. This episode features Amazon Code Guru Profiler, Amazon Code Guru Reviewer, and AWS App 2 Container. Hey everyone, we're back again, another episode of AWS What's Next. Many of you may be tuning in for the first time. I know uh, we have these episodes somewhat infrequently, but we're trying to up that cadence a little bit because there's a lot of really exciting launches to cover. But again, if you haven't been here before, AWS What's Next is the show where Rob and I over here try to cover the latest and greatest launches from Amazon Web Services. And in particular, we know there's a lot of different ways that you can consume this launch information. One of the things we're really passionate about is actually showing you these launches in action. Uh, so we bring some of the service team members out, we get them to show us a little bit of a demo, uh, and we all have a good time. We've got some folks in chat saying happy Friday. Yes, happy Friday indeed. Hopefully this is as fun for all of you as it is for us to, to close out our work week. But again, my name is Dick Walsh, developer advocate, co-host of AWS What's Next. And joining me over here is... <laughs> One of these directions, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm Robert with AWS, and uh, you know Nick and I have been running a couple episodes of this show already. You know, if you're a return viewer, welcome back. If you're brand new, I think you're in for a treat. This episode, we're as Nick mentioned, we're changing the format very slightly to kind of spend more time with fewer launches. We feel like the uh, this is a good change overall because we get to go deeper with the expert guests that we have on the show. But if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it as always. Yeah. And again, Rob mentioned live show. So we are watching in chat on both Twitch and LinkedIn. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns, wondering how this uh, given service integrates with your stack, just let us know. We're happy to bring those up on stream and answer them. You know, again, live on twitch.tv and LinkedIn live. So regardless of where you're tuning in from platform or part of the world or what hour, hour it is over by you, we're happy to have you here. Probably going to run for about, you know, roughly an hour and a half, two hours. But again, really dialing in on, on the demos and actually getting a deeper dive on um, the, the launches that we're going to be covering today. But we would be remiss if we did not mention the fact that there are there are too many launches for us to be able to cover all of them, right, Rob? Like, how, It would take us hours to cover every single launch between each of our episodes. So what we like to do here in the beginning of the show is do a little bit of a, an opener for all of the guests that are not able to make it today that Rob and I think you know, are, are worthy of, uh, you know, or, or are standout enough that we think we want to make sure that you're updated on. So we go through the launches, there's a launch blog post, there's lots of, diff- lots of different avenues there. And we pick out a, a, a select few of them that we like to cover before we get into some of the demos. Yeah, definitely. And uh, these are, by the way, if you want to follow these, you can also take a look at our launch blog. Uh, we have a lot of really great uh, blog post articles that take you in depth into some of these features. A lot of these features, when we launch them, we like to launch uh, a corresponding document that explains in detail with code samples, how do you start using this thing today, right? And so that's one of the things that I think is coolest about these launches. None of the launch, none of the launches are ever fluff. It's always, how do you put this into action today? So without further ado, we have four launch posts for you today. Two of them are related to RDS. So we'll start with those. And the first one is regarding the ability of uh, RDS on Outpost. Now, Outposts, for those of you who haven't heard of it, an AWS Outpost is basically, think of it as your own on-demand AWS data center. If you run a factory or you have a data center where you need ultra low latency, that you just can't have, you can't deal with the latency of connecting to an AWS data center or a POP or an edge location, this is for you, right? Uh, it's basically 
We send you a rack with our custom hardware, including the Nitro system, including uh, customizable amounts of compute, storage, memory, networking, etc. You plug it in, you provide network capacity, and then it basically shows up in your console as a standalone AWS region. And then all of the same APIs are available. Now, one of the things that most common questions we get with Outpost is, well, what services are available? What is the schedule for launching them? And of course, at the beginning, you know, we wanted to get Outpost into customers' hands and start getting feedback so that we can know what direction to take it. And we're constantly increasing these services. And this is what this announcement is about. RDS, one of our most popular and fast-growing services, relational database service, uh, is now available on Outpost in two different formats. As you know, RDS uh, on, on, on a mature AWS region has uh, five different database engines backing it. And it's available now on Outpost with two of those engines, MySQL and Postgres in particular. And then we're going to be adding support for more database engines coming soon. And then um, we also have another RDS-related announcement, which is RDS Proxy. Nick, you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. So RDS Proxy is really exciting. We uh, announced it previously at reInvent 2019, which it was going into, I believe, public preview or private preview. Well, public preview because that's why we were announcing it. But the, the, the general availability of RDX proxy is very exciting. So for folks that are especially interested in, in doing, let's say, like serverless, authoring serverless applications, right? If you're using a database like DynamoDB built from the, the ground up to handle extremely large amounts of concurrency and, and, and extremely large amounts of connections at any one point in time, um, you know, that, that's always worked very well. But something that's emerged that is, uh, you know, also necessary is the need to have this sort of functionality for relational databases. So for those that aren't familiar, RDS, Relational Database Service, offers fully managed offerings with, uh, you know, underlying engines like familiar underlying engines like MySQL, uh, SQL Server, uh, Postgres, what have you. But traditionally, this sort of middle of the road issue of like, well, I have my clients, they need to access the database, and then I have my database, and I'm, I'm confident in how that's running operationally. You still need this sort of proxy in between the two of them to be able to manage that connection pooling, lest you end up blowing up your connection pools on the database, or you end up incurring the cost to scale up very expensive database infrastructure, when you can simply have some sort of middleware to do that. Now, that involves a lot of challenges and, and essentially uh, this is a word you'll you'll hear very often on the show but undifferentiated heavy lifting the the math the science and the engineering work that goes into optimizing and developing and managing your own proxy for a relational database is oftentimes not differentiated for your business and so the release of Amazon RDS proxy really helps to sort of push that value that, that the RDS suite of offerings gives further upstream so you can essentially have an RDS proxy that sits in front of your RDS database. Uh, it handles a lot of really nifty things like automatically doing service discovery where if your RDS instance sort of fails over or you have you know, disaster recovery, you can automatically find the underlying RDS instances and all of that. It handles all that, that, that inter-networking between the proxy and the database. And then your client applications can hit a static endpoint for the RDS proxy. And your RDS proxy can have separate scaling mechanisms from the underlying database itself so that you have a cost to optimize deployment. Lots on RDS this week. We we're yeah. coming out, we're com available in Outposts and RDS Proxy now GA. So some exciting stuff on that front. But uh, I apologize to the database lovers. We do have to move on from, from database-related launches. Next up, we do have one with GroundTruth. Uh, and for, for followers of the show, GroundTruth is no stranger here. On prior weeks, we showed uh, a, a new launch for 3D point clouds, which have a lot of applications with autonomous vehicles and, and LiDAR as a uh, measurement mechanism or a measuring device for those 3D point clouds. And this week, we have another very exciting launch for GroundTruth. Again, SageMaker GroundTruth is a data labeling service that makes it really easy for you to delegate tasks uh, of, of data labeling to a workforce and automate the or, or streamline the process by which you can create those data labeling sort of interfaces to make that very simple. So this week, 
the, the exciting launch of SageMaker Ground Truth is uh, the ability to have more quality of life improvements for labeling videos. So video, labeling videos is very challenging for uh, a lot of reasons, but if I could stroke a very broad brush here, it's like take all the challenges of labeling an image and now assume that those are running 30 images per second or 60 images per second for the duration of your video. So the, the amount of work increases exponentially. One of the most common things that customers want to do when labeling video is actually track objects as they move across a frame. And now think of the, you know, the tediousness of maybe animating something by hand, frame by frame. Now imagine that for data labeling across all of your videos. So uh, a very exciting launch here for SageMaker Ground Truth is the ability to optimize or automate the tracking of objects automatically. So the way this is going to work is you can upload, uh, you know, your video as the task. Um, you can create in uh, maybe uh, the beginning, but as well as a handful of other keyframes throughout. And SageMaker Ground Truth can take a best guess at tracking that object through all of the intermediary frames by which you as the reviewer can then go in and, and modify them. So essentially what it's doing is reducing the, the complexity of the amount of work from frame by frame to one or just a handful of keyframes, and it will interpolate all of the others for you, thus making the cost per video label or cost per unit of time significantly lower. One of the really exciting use cases of this is actually with the uh, National Football League, the NFL. So they actually use this to be able to track helmets on screen for their players. And then as a result of that, they can track things like the position and assume things like the velocity of the players on the field. And that leads to a host of other uh, an downstream analytics that can be produced from there. But trying to manage tracking all of those players and all of the parts of their you know, body in real time uh, is, is a very difficult task. But Steve McGrand Truth helps to make that possible for, for, for pre-recorded data sets. Yeah, and uh, our final announcement for the day for the news section is IoT SiteWise. Now, I think this requires a little bit of setup. You know, at, if we think about the the pace that IoT has been taking over the, the last couple of years, it's been really incredible. And one area where we see this is in manufacturing. You know, the, the, the amount of intelligence that these devices have on a modern assembly line, for example, for a vehicle or for consumer goods or electronics has really skyrocketed. And what that means is that what used to be you know, a factory floor with a lot of complex industrial equipment now has all of this intelligence and sensors and data that, that's being built into it, right? So you might have a sensor that says like, hey, you know, how many widgets is this machine producing? Uh, what is the error rate? How many do we have to discard? Is there some sort of... It, what is the level of efficiency that it's operating at? Does it have enough all the components to, uh, to do its job? So it might be spewing out this data constantly. And then now that in turn, that's great. You have that now. But... That creates a challenge in terms of how do you aggregate that data? How do you organize it? How do you analyze it? How do you use it to derive business insights? Most importantly, how do you know that you know something is wrong and needs somebody to go and look at this thing, right? And this has been a problem for a lot of different industries, uh, especially as their, their technology gets more and more advanced. Uh, these devices become smarter and smarter. So that's why we built IoT SiteWise. And what this really does for you is it's a piece of software that runs in Gateway on in your location, uh, you know, and what, you, what it can do is it can basically act as a proxy for gathering all this information. So imagine that you are one of these factory man floor managers and you want to have a single place to look at the health and the efficiency of your factory floor. This is what the uh, AWS IoT site-wise, it's a mouthful to say, but this is what this product delivers. It's extremely focused, built directly as a result of customer feedback uh, who are you know, really getting into this IoT space. So you're in that space, you're manufacturing, check it out. Awesome. Well, uh, Rob, I just realized that, you know, we mentioned we were going to do some news before getting into the demos, but I don't want to keep the fans at home waiting. Let's give them a little hint of what they, they have to look forward to because we're about to get into the first demo. 
But today, we're going to be covering two very exciting launches with representatives from the service team showing us them in action. First up is going to be Amazon CodeGuru. Later on in the show, a launch from just this week, I believe, uh, or last week, which was uh, AWS App2Container. So again, we don't want to spill the beans too much on, on the details. We'll save that for the sessions. But again, live show. Get your questions in on chat. And uh, I know we're still live with this episode, but uh, if you're looking to catch up on any prior episodes, we also have a podcast. We will have the links to that in the description. But if you search for AWS What's Next on some of the major podcasting platforms, you should be able to find that. Without further ado, we'll be getting into Amazon CodeGuru. Joining us for a very exciting uh, session here about Amazon CodeGuru is Danielle Tsvekova from the Amazon CodeGuru team. Danielle, I thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about this. Thank you, Nick, and uh, really good to be with you. Awesome. Welcome, Daniela. Yeah, welcome. This was, uh, this was a launch that I think made a pretty big splash back at reInvent. I know a lot of people have been waiting in anticipation to see more of it, see it in action, and we will get into that a little bit later. But let's start very, very high level. Daniela, what is CodeGuru? Um, sure, Nick. I would like to answer this question, but before we go into this, let's go into what problems it's actually solving. And I'm going to switch to my screen. Sure. Um, so imagine a typical week for a software developer. If you're a software developer, most likely you're spending a lot of time uh, writing code and reviewing the code, building it, testing it, unit test, performance test, all of that, deploying it, running it, enabling some sort of monitoring and logging. And sometimes there could be issues, in which case you would need to resolve them. And then rinse and repeat. In a typical week, or let's say a month, if you're lucky, uh, what would happen is that you have buggy or inefficient codes um, that somehow doesn't get caught during the um, uh, code reviews. When you run your tests, sometimes you don't have sufficient coverage. And uh, when you set up your monitoring, I mean, monitoring is great. Uh, you need to make sure that you set up all the alarms and metrics correctly. Um, and oftentimes when you, when you have those alarms, it means that things, it's already too late. The problem has happened. In addition to that, you also have cost issues related to your application. So is your application efficient enough? Are you, are you running it the way that, you know, in the most economical way or, or are you spending more money than you should? And finally, uh, when you have operational issues, oftentimes, I mean, it takes longer than you would expect. This means that a, you're not able to go back to your writing your code, creating your functionality, but also you're impacting your customers and, and your business. And so with this in mind, we, we created um, Amazon CodeGuru to solve these problems. And uh, CodeGuru is a developer tool, which is powered by machine learning. And it provides intelligent recommendations to improve your code quality, and it also identifies your applications, your live applications, most expensive lines of code. And it actually has two distinct features, which uh, we're going to go into deeper detail later. But very briefly, we have Amazon Code Guru Reviewer, which um, uh, is a service that uses machine learning to identify important critical issues that are difficult to find, even by sometimes the most experienced engineer. And um, with this, you improve the code quality of your application. And in addition to that, you get recommendations how to fix those issues. 
with CodeGuru Profiler, you can optimize the performance of your uh, application because it, you get help on identifying the most expensive line of code. You get uh, help troubleshooting performance issues. And on top of that, as an extra bonus, you can improve the cost to run your application, the, the infrastructure cost. So uh, just to give you a very brief overview of where, the, where do these two services play in, uh, in this whole uh, software development lifecycle, you have a code reviewer that uh, provides these uh, code reviews during your, the, the phase where you write and review your code. Then profiler plays in several places. Uh, when you do your performance testing, you want to make sure that um, you catch any performance issues before they even get to production. Now you can ask me the question, well, why don't you get them catch those problems with reviewer? And the truth is that to some extent, reviewer can catch some of them, but what you want to avoid is the, the trap of premature optimization. This means that you really want to optimize codes where it, it impacts you in the live application. There's, there's no point trying to optimize everything. And then finally, you are going to run a profiler on production. Uh, it's going to run continuously with very low overhead. And you're going to catch all these anomalies that uh, Profiler is monitoring so that you know early in advance when something is about to go wrong. And finally, when you have an issue, you can use the insights that uh, the Profiler provides uh, for the most expensive lines of code, as well as the visualizations that tell you where you're spending the most, most of your time. So I'm going to close out my screen. And so... To the, one, that was a great overview. There's, you know, it's clear that I think to a lot of people that have authored software before and, and have to deploy it and manage it, there's, there's a lot of problems and friction points uh, in, in such a process. I know when you said writing bugs in your code uh, is part of the typical software process, uh, my eyes lit up because that's all of the code I write has bugs, many of them. But uh, <laughs> it really feels like these two, you know, the profile and the reviewer are two main phases, right? Like one is sort of like, the, the static portion of like, you know, analyzing the code as is. And then there's sort of the more active portion with, with profiling it to achieve insight as to like expensive lines of code and, and downstream, you know, like optimization of how that code runs separate from just the, the bugs that exist sort of inherently, right? Now, Danielle, I'm going to break protocol here and ask you a question about future feature. When is CodeGuru going to be able to write code for me? <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you want somebody else to write code for you? Absolutely. <laughs> if it uses machine learning, why not? Yeah, I welcome our machine learning overlords. In all seriousness, I think you made a lot of really good points. And I think that some of them deserve uh, a, a slight a bit of elaboration because they're, they're really, you really need to kind of do this for a while before you appreciate how, uh, how useful a tool like this is. You know, you mentioned remote optimization. I, I, I want to share a very, very short story here. So, so uh, when I was uh, uh, working at Microsoft a couple years ago, I, I still remember to this day, we had a code review. And this is your point of like, what kinds of things can code reviews catch? And, uh, you know, I was working with a very talented teammate and he was, he said, you're making a copy of this string. You shouldn't do that. And we spent, you know, <laughs> a long time debating about the, the, the impact of copying this string on the actual performance of the application. And it turns out that through a lot of manual profiling, that copying that string did not affect the performance of the application in the slightest. 
Now, what we did discover unexpectedly is that our application was spending a long time in places that we had never expected, right? And I think this, this, this concept has been reinforced over and over and over again, where I now have zero trust in my ability to, in advance, identify where the code bottlenecks will be. Often when I think that a particular area will be slow, I'm like, oh, look, we're doing a um, O of n squared loop over here, right? That's going to be slow. We, 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 know, we, we know O of n squared is bad. Can we make this log n? So we spend a day fixing that out. It turns out n, if n is not large enough, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, so we end up wasting time fixing things that are not the bottleneck while the things that are bottlenecks just kind of slip by, right? You know, especially in the, in the age of modern package managers, you're like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that. NPM install and then call some other package. And it turns out that, that that package is extremely slow in terms, in your critical path. And that introduces a huge performance bottleneck. So, so I think this idea of premature optimization really kind of slices two ways. It has something to do with the fact that we're just not very good at identifying where the bottlenecks in our code are going to be. The system is just too complex to keep in your head. And to, 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 you know, we're not good compilers. Our brains are not built for that, right? And so having software and tools that help you do that is really important. And I, I really appreciate that we have a feature like that here. Yeah, and I, um, you mentioned something really important, and it's the element of surprise. And I cannot stress this enough. You, you think that you know your application. I've seen so many developers looking at the uh, application runtime data with the profiler saying, well, I didn't expect my application to spend so much time here. And it happens over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think we've sort of arrived at this 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 outcome where it's you know it's it becomes insurmountable an insurmountable challenge for people to to be their own best tools for introspection of of, of profiling their their code. Uh, so the obvious answer to me is okay. Well, let's uh, you know let's profile our applications. But it seems that a lot of companies are not doing this. So Daniel, I know you're far more in the loop on this than I am. Why are companies not profiling more often with automated tools and how is CodeGuru changing this? So, I mean, there are multiple reasons why this is not happening as much as it should. One of the reasons is the perception that profilers are difficult. And I've spoken to engineers who say, well, it's difficult, it takes time, I don't have time. Uh, this is more uh, meant for performance engineers. I'm not a performance engineer. Uh, well, it doesn't run on production. Then you tell them actually some profilers run on production or it requires setup. So lots and lots of reasons. Um, and, and the other one is uh, deciphering all the information that profilers provide. It, it's a bit of a learning curve and people just, they, they, they first need, you know, people need to see the benefit before they invest the time. And I think that one thing that I've seen is that, that there's just not enough understanding of, of how extremely useful profiling is uh, to help the performance of your application. I just feel like there's not enough good stories uh, of um, you know personal wins achieved you know, by using profiling. Now, what profile a code group profiler does is it cuts across all these you know difficulties of oh too much information I don't know how to use it and. With the feature that I'm going to show later on, which is the recommendation reports, it really looks at your runtime application and it says, well, this is the problems that I identified and this is how to fix it. So it, it doesn't get any simpler than that. Well, maybe simpler is that it fixes the code for you, but we're, we're working on that. The, the simplest um, UX is where it just writes the code from the start and there's no need to make amendments at all. But uh, that, that, 
I'll leave that PR FAQ to Rob at some point in time. Um, <laughs> so, so awesome. So, you know, profiling traditionally seems to have the, this, this tough reputation. People, people, this ownership problem of, you know, maybe it's not in, in my wheelhouse to be doing this. So with CodeGuru, I'd imagine here that, you know, I, I heard a little rumor that this was like, we've had similar tools internally. And that was the inspiration to being able to bring CodeGuru to other people because, you know, we saw many performance gains using it. And we know that other developers would see that as well. Is, is that true? Or am I just totally making things up? Absolutely true. We've been running CodeGuru Profiler internally on many, many applications and uh, for the last several years. And it's been a phenomenal success. Uh, we, we have saved so much money in different ways. And I'm going to go really deep into this, what we mean by saving money and most expensive lines of code and what all that means. But due to the phenomenal success that Profiler has had internally, we said, well, you know, it's making our life easier. It's saving us money. Let's make it available for us. Yeah, always an exciting value proposition. Being able to, you know, it's like making a piece of software and putting it out in the world and hoping people like it is one thing. But knowing that at Amazon scale, we've used this and achieved a lot of value is, is almost like, well, we know that customers are going to, you know, get value out of this too. So always a nice origin story. I want to hear more about this most expensive line of code. Sure. So what we mean by most expensive line of code, it's the sort of expense that you really don't want to spend and that you could have saved yourself spending. And, and us helping you find that wasteful line of code or dangerous line of code uh, is going to save you all this money. So what does that mean? It's the line of code that can cause your uh, application to crash or have performance issues uh, is the line of code that is going to have a uh, make your application uh, run in a more costly way. It's the line of code that's going to prevent your developer from spending their time developing new functionality because they have to fight the problem. And basically, it's it's the thing that shouldn't have happened and yet it happens. And, and we provide an answer how to fix it. Yeah, I, actually, you know, now that you mentioned that, I want to connect this with one of the, the threads going on in chat here. I think um, Tesserect, I'm pronouncing that name correctly, is asking why we run this thing continuously as opposed to running it in an endurance or a stress test. And let me put that question to you, but also kind of uh, um, start off with a, a thought of my own. You know, it occurs to me that one of the, the benefits of running this thing continuously is the time to detection of, a, of an issue, right? So imagine that we've been, you know, we've been building a piece of software together. And we've been, we've been working on this for years and we've never run a profiler. And we suddenly turn the profiler on or we, we run the profiler within the context of a stress test. And we discover all these performance problems with it, right? How exactly do we go about fixing that? The act of fixing that itself, by the way, is going to introduce more bugs, almost certainly, right? And so depending on what the situation is, it might be a very, very expensive process to kind of work back that technical debt. But I think one of the benefits, at least to me, is that when you run a continuous profiler, you're detecting performance regressions. You can have, you can establish something like a performance baseline. And per check-in, you can say, in the integration environment, does this regress the mainline performance of the following test cases, right? And the reason why I feel like that's nearly a superpower is because there's this very interesting relationship between the time that the defect is discovered and how much it costs to fix. And there's some research out there that indicates that the, this actually goes up exponentially. So if you can catch a defect, 
let's say while you're coding or while you're designing or in the test phase before the product, before the feature ships out to, to live customers, it's actually relatively easy to fix because you don't, you're not dealing with the, all of the, the consequent features and the relationships that that code has to other pieces of code. But if you discover a bug a year later and all these layers of code have been added on top of it, it's very, very difficult to tease it apart. Right. And so that, I think that's my take on the value of continuous uh, monitoring. But what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to do it at the earliest possible phase or stage where it makes sense. So in other words, what we said earlier, you don't want to prematurely optimize. So you're going to be running reviewer so that uh, you catch all the defects to the extent possible. And then you're going to be stress testing or performance testing under load your application to try and catch as much as possible from any of those performance issues that your code may have introduced. And to do that, you'll be running synthetic load, which is fine to emulate, but not 100% a real um, um, production environment. And then once you run the profiler, or, uh, your application on production with the profiler all the time, it's going to continuously monitor uh, for anomalies, the performance of your application, and it's going to find these uh, most expensive lines of code. Uh, it's going to be providing this data available for you for when if something crashes or has a performance issue so that when the problem has already happened, the data is already there for you. If you were to enable it only when the problem happens, then it might already be too late because you want to be seeing, well, how did my profile look when things were good? And, and how does it look now that things have gone south? So we've really like sort of delved into the category of essentially how this profiler is working under the hood. So when we're thinking about applications that this can work for, are there any limitations or any particular classes of applications that Koguru Profiler is, is compatible with? Currently, Koguru Profiler uh, works for JVM, any application that runs in the JVM, so Java, uh, Kotlin, Scala, Closure, and so on. And it uh, supports um, any sort of compute environment. So this means you know, EC2, ECS, EKS. It runs also on uh, AWS Lambda and even on production, oh, oh, sorry, on-premises. On and one other part of that, when I think about using a new tool that's going to, you know, track the performance of my application or, or measure it in some way, I, I immediately start worrying, you know, like what sort of setup or integration cost is this going to yield for me, right? Do I need to change code? Do I have to inject decorators in my code to, to run this profiling? What does that look like for CodeGuru? Yeah, so uh, I can I can show you a very like extremely quick demo for this. And the answer to this is no, you don't need to change code. All you need to do is to start your application with a command line Java Java agent switch, and and that's it. Sure. Do you want to walk us through that now, or we can do that in a little bit? Up to you. Uh, we can do that in a little bit. Okay. Cool. Also, I know some people are, are talking in chat. We mentioned Danielle mentioned previously that there's two main components to CodeGuru: the profiler and, and sort of the the I believe it's the analyzer. Or the reviewer? I'm, I'm blanking reviewer. on the second one. Reviewer. Uh, we actually will have a second guest on in just a little bit that will talk about reviewers. So we're going to we're, we're dive deep here on the profiler. We'll see a demo of that. And we'll also get another guest with another demo for reviewer later on. So sit tight. We, we're not ignoring your questions in chat. We'll, we'll loop those back in in just a bit. But again, sort of bringing the conversation back, uh, you mentioned, again, establishing a baseline is imperative because if you're already sort of experiencing troubles in production, you have no standard or normal baseline uh, to compare to. 
Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the those algorithms or the anomaly detection around how it how Code Guru Profiler decides that things may be awry? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Code Guru looks at the profile of your application and what is a profile? A profile is essentially an aggregation of the stack traces of, of your application over a given period of time that have been you know, smashed together, aggregated. And, and uh, we know where you're spending, uh, in which methods you're spending, what percentage of, the, of your time, or, or active CPU time, or workload time. So anomaly detection works on the line of code level, or the method level where the, the algorithm, machine learning algorithms have been written in such a way that code profiler knows which methods to, to monitor for anomalies and it continuously adjusts itself over time so that it knows what constitutes an anomaly versus not. Because for example, when you have seasonality, that's not really an anomaly. It's just something that you know happens all the time. So we want to reduce the noise to, uh, to the extent possible. And then when this happens, an anomaly is something that really changes and it's something that you want to look into. It could be CPU uh, suddenly spiking up or CPU going down. And in addition to uh, the, the machine learning algorithms automatically de detecting anomalies, you as a developer can also further, if you want, help hardware profiler to learn based on what you think is an anomaly. And I'll show you um, shortly what, what I mean by that. So real quick thing here, uh, based on everything you've described so far, it sounds like Koguru Profiler is a sampling profiler. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah it's correct. Uh, the reason why it is a sampling profiler is because we wanted to reduce the, uh, the overhead. So profiler collects only enough data to be statistically significant. It usually does this by sampling the stack traces every one second on some or all of your instances. It depends. Like we, we if you have a lot of instances, we're not going to run on all of them. But again, it's all about statistical significance. Yeah. So interesting. This is the one second runs once per second, but you also mentioned earlier that you can run this with Lambda and EKS. So is this going to run once per second per instance of the JVM? It's algorithmic, so it's this is the average, but it's going to change based on how the control plane is uh, making it run. The, the point that I'm trying to make is that we are trying to limit the overhead to around one percent utilization. Sure, sure, yeah, but but I mean, when you because you mentioned also earlier that you it, you have to you have to gather statistically significant data, right? If you're sampling once per second, I run for ten seconds. I don't have enough samples to really yeah. form. Going on with my so do you have a does the uh, does our model kind of capture uh, at what point we have statistically significant data that we can trust? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely does. We we have this mathematical brain or statistical brain that knows how much is enough, and and that is also varied for lambda because you know lambda starts and stops, and the control plane knows uh, at what point it has gathered enough information. Uh, that that is really cool. That I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, one of the things that's becoming really clear to me, I've never performed extensive or automated profiling of an application. I've done some manual testing here and there, but it is sort of bridging this gap between the actual capability to capture the necessary data, but then also this giant leap forward of actually making that information digestible and actionable, right? Because the things you've described so far, Daniela, are like 
okay, well, there's going to be there's going to be some sort of report or or an output of this so that I don't have to just read raw logs. There's also this you know anomaly detection so that I can understand that I'm actually looking at data that that probably means something. There is some sort of deviation from the norm here. Uh, you know, even with the the sort of knobs to tune to make that even easier, you, you, I don't have to worry about running tests to see if my algorithm is going to detect the problems I want it to. A lot of this sort of last mile problem of of of, of detecting or or again making this data actionable is sort of dealt automatically through Profiler. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So we talked a little bit about you know you said there's there's some automation under the hood with how this would work on a fleet or, or you know multiple uh, pieces of infrastructure. Uh, I mentioned here at the top of the broadcast that this was announced by Andy Jassy in the uh, keynote over at reInvent 2019. I believe there was a launch pad session covering a little bit about this, but some months have gone by now. Is there anything in particular that's new with CodeGuru Profilers since when we first announced it that folks may not be familiar with? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So some of the features I've already mentioned, uh, so anomaly detection uh, using machine learning is a new feature. I'm going to show you briefly what it looks like. Support for AWS Lambda profiling is also a new feature. Another one that I can think of is uh, improvements in the visualizations, which I haven't talked much about. So I will show you what they look like, um, where we tell you, well, this color, I call it color my code. Essentially, it's a way for us to tell you this code here is yours and that code here is um, a library that you're calling or a framework. So it really helps you look at the code that you can actually change. Another one is ability to send, set up a cl um, CloudWatch metrics for the recommendations. And also, we now show you the dollar value of the recommendations, which is super cool. So that can help you improve the prioritization of all these issues that we find for you. To look at the dollar value, I mean, you can make up your mind which one you want to fix first. Wait, wait a second, Daniela. Does that include the, the cost of your software engineering team? <laughs> <laughs> this one is priceless. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. <laughs> well, uh, I feel bad because every time I try to ask you for some more context, Danielle, you're like, yeah, and I'll show you eventually. You know, it'll be clear when you see it in action. So, you know, I think we all have a very good understanding of sort of where Profiler fits in. And I guess I can speak on behalf of everyone here by saying, you know, are we going to be able to see this in action? I know that's what we promise here on What's Next, but are we going to be able to see a demo for Profiler today? I'm going to share my screen now. Great. Awesome. Cool. So I'm, I've jumped really uh, like straight into the, uh, the recommendation report. So remember I told you we find the most expensive lines of code or the deviations from normal. So this is for the application, which by the way we call profiling group, image processing web app. And as you can see, we have five recommendations. Now, what is a recommendation report? It actually consists of two types of messages. One is anomalies, which are things uh, that could impact the stability and reliability uh, of your application. And the other one is a more specific assessment of, of how performant your application is and what is wrong with it specifically, with an explanation of how to fix it. So let's go through the anomaly first. So as you can see here, we have an anomaly with uh, the file zip file.get entry. You can clearly see that this is an anomaly. And uh, the reason why we flagged it as such is because it's taking an unexpected amount of workflow time. And you can see time series graph where you have this big blip here. And you can hover over it to see what's the, uh, what's the percentage increase. 
And uh, you can you can also get SMS notifications um, um, when you have such anomalies. And as I mentioned earlier, you can give us a thumbs up or thumbs down if you, uh, which kind of reinforces the algorithm to know, okay, well, yeah, thumbs up, definitely this is a problem, or you might want to reconsider this. I don't agree with that. And it's not something that you have to do, uh, but if you do it, it's just going to um, teach the machine learning algorithms faster. So, so that's yeah. Well, so I was going to say, you know. With a graph like this and, and, you know, the concept of an anomaly and I see a percentage uh, on that screen, this makes me think a lot about, let's say, you know, monitoring the average percent CPU utilization on my cluster, but that's quite different from what Koguru Profiler is doing here, right? What we're seeing is that the Java util zip, zip file get entry method, I suppose, or, or whatever it's called here in Java is using an unexpectedly high amount of CPU utilization, which is measuring something entirely more granular. Like the expectation here is that this one line of code, obviously we may implement the change, but it should not have extremely variable amount of, you know, percent performance time uh, or, or relative percent utilization time, right? Yeah, you bring a very good point here. And I would like to take a step back. So yes, there are absolutely many anomaly uh, detection services that you know, look for anomalies and however, what, what Cobra Profiler does, it goes really deep into the, uh, the runtime data of your application going down to the, this line of code or, or a method name to tell you, well, you know what, you need, something is wrong with this one. You need to watch over this one. It's really important to understand that when higher order metrics or higher level metrics like CPU utilization and that there's a spike, I mean, it's already too late. Whereas uh, what we've observed with Kogu Profiler is that uh, it's so it's a very sensitive anomaly detection because it it, it feel or it finds these subtle changes in your application at the, at the method level, and oftentimes this happens well before the problem has developed into a full blown incident. So this gives you this extra time to notice that something is going off. Look into it and fix it before you pay the big price. Yeah, and, and something like this, an anomaly like this, would be causal towards your cluster or your infrastructure you're having higher utilization. So when you're actually trying to get to the or performing a root cause analysis, Koguru Profiler gets us much closer to, to resolution here than just understanding. And, and you know, obviously they both exist for in, in different parts of the pipeline and for different reasons. But this is just another level deeper than than users have been able to to access previously. Yeah. Okay. So going down the list, so I mentioned there's two parts to the recommendation reports. One is the anomalies and the other one are performance issues. So the performance issues are related to um, really expensive lines of code. Those are um, inefficient use of, of uh, this case, Java. And uh, they they point to issues with the code for which there is a better way to to write this code. And let let's look at the anatomy of a recommendation. So I'll just go all the way to the bottom. Repeated Jackson of uh, object mapper creation. So this is a typical type of a performance issue. It's if you have an expensive object that you repeatedly create, and as you can see in this case. I'll show you the impact of, of this performance issue on, on your uh, on your CPU, on your active CPU, which 10% is quite significant. And we show you, remember, new feature, cost of that issue, close to $3,000 a year. 
And we give you an explanation of, hey, this is uh, this is what's happening. Uh, so Jackson object mapper uh, is thread safe, and you should create it all at once. And then we have desert resolution steps. Um, and also, if you want to see it in the visualizations, we have uh, links for that. So I haven't spoken about visualizations. If we have time only, we'll briefly cover it. But this is this is basically your recommendation report, and um, we. It, the anomaly part of the recommendation report is fairly sensitive, so um, it, it gets updated every five minutes. So um, in every one of those reports, our reports, you get updates every one, uh, five minutes. Cool. So um, yeah. yeah, just real quick, I, um, I just want to connect this one of the questions that uh, came across in chat. This does demonstrate the fact that this doesn't profile just your own code, right? As you can see here in the Java util zip folder, this is Utility, this is a utility package. Uh, yeah. Some of the other examples you have here. Um, so hopefully that answers the question in chat. That is absolutely true. Uh, and I can give you an example with, we had an application that was using a library, the uh, default Java crypto library, which was causing performance issues. So that's not your code. It's just your code using another library. But it, it was impacting negatively our performance of your application and the recommendation report found out about this issue and it recommended that you change to another library, which in this case is the open source Amazon Crypto Provider Library, which had dramatic improvements on the performance of that application. So yeah, we look at the entire application and, and uh, we, we, we tell you recommendations that could be any part of the code. With the visualizations, which I would like to go briefly into, you can see your code and other code. My code, your code. Yeah, let's see it. Okay. See if I already opened it, right? So what you see here, this city skyline almost, <laughs> is a, it's called a plane graph and it's sort of becoming a, a standard representation of the, the stack traces, uh, the aggregated stack traces of what your application is doing. For a given period of time, you can see uh, up, uh, upright the, uh, the, that given period of time, which uh, is, I believe, the day here. What you see here uh, on the on the horizontal axis is always uh, methods arranged alphabetically that uh, you're calling. And on the y-axis, the vertical axis, you see the relationship between these parent and, and child methods. So uh, at the bottom, you have your the main function that's calling another child and all the way up to the top. And the interesting thing about the visualization is that you can very quickly see what takes a lot of CPU. The reason why is because the width of all these horizontal bars, which are called frames, i.e. the methods, that, that tells you how much time it takes in the CPU or the workload time, depending on what time you're looking at. So if you hover over any one of those, you can see things like the name of the method, class, uh, uh, class and method name, the uh, percentage that it takes from the, uh, from active CPU time or workload time. In this particular case, this is 17.28%. You can see how much it costs you per year, so that it gives you an idea of how expensive your code is. And uh, um, I, 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 do I did mention time a lot, so we're going to go very briefly into this. But what I wanted to mention is that we look uh, at the, uh, the, the data in two different ways, well, actually three different ways. So this is uh, the, uh, we call it the overview uh, view of uh, your profile, which is looking at the key entry points into your application. 
And so the key operations is something that is logical for you. You know what uh, what are the, the main services that are, or the main operations that are executed. But also, if you want to know the nuts and bolts of your application, you're going to switch to the hotspot view, which tells you what are my most expensive, as in lines of code that take the most amount of time. And uh, you find them at the top here. So as you can see, right below the main function, you have zip file entry, which takes uh, a little over 30% of your CPU time. And, and then you can see all the parents that, that it's calling. And then we have another view. I'm not going to show you here, but if you want to see a specific method and all the parents that are calling it and all the children that it's calling, you can, okay, I'm going to show you right here. So you see, you know, parents, children. So all the occurrences of this method throughout the, um, uh, the, your profile are observed. So going back to time. We have the concept of CPU time or active CPU time and uh, uh, latency. So if you're working on a latency issue, you're going to be switching to the latency view, which looks at the workload time. This means that even if your CPU, even if you're not CPU bound, uh, your application might still be slow. And uh, reasons for this, I mean, there could be many reasons, but one of them is um, could be that your application is or a method is blocked or waiting for something. So when you switch to this view, you have this legend here that uh, shows the color-coded thread uh, states. So uh, if you if everything is red, it's great because red is runnable. So it's fine. I mean, it's not fine because if you're spending too much time in runnable and uh, you have this element of surprise, hey, why am I spending so much time? That could be an issue. But the other things to look uh, at, uh, for are this blue color, which is blocked. You definitely don't want to be blocked. Or the green color, you're waiting for something, you uh, want to look into this to see why this is happening. And if, if you switch to, again, the CPU view, you're going to see that, you know, it looks different because we're not showing you this extra time when your application is not doing anything in the CPU and yet it's taking time. So these are the visualizations. And I want to point out that both recommendation reports and visualizations are really important. The recommendation reports are uh, this low-hanging fruit, which is really easy to see and, and fix. And the visualizations are, they give you all the, uh, everything that you want to know about your application. They're searchable, by the way. Um, you can search for a frame and, and you don't have time for this, but it, it, it's, they're very powerful. And if you know your application, you're the best judge of where you're supposed to be spending this time. And if you're not, you want to find out why. Yeah, I mean, even just the, the visualization alone, I think, just packs so much value into what is essentially one, I don't want to use the word like single pane of glass, because I think there's other connotations that are more apt for that. But essentially, just being able to understand the complex behavior of, of such a system in, in sort of one view is extremely powerful. It, I mean, if nothing else, helps you to prioritize where you are looking in your code base to potentially even make improvements, nonetheless, understanding whether you know some of those are blocked or not blocked. So there's just so many different layers of, of value that are sort of packed in here in those visualizations. And I, I know in chat, people like uh, Nacho Pants and uh, I think it's SS Tam, like we have, we have a lot of people who are really enjoying these graphs. These look pretty familiar. I, I think um, if I'm not mistaken, they're, uh, these were popularized actually by Netflix, Flame Graphs, um, for monitoring and observability. Uh, so it's really cool to see those, uh, A, becoming more widely used, but B, seeing all the features and the tie-ins here directly with those, directly to even dollars and cents paired to certain lines of codes due to this dependency stack. So 
Cool stuff. We have a question in chat from the King Phil. Is .NET Core supported slash on the roadmap? So it is not supported yet, and we would like to hear from customers who are interested in uh, this sort of support uh, so that we can um, start working on it. So voice your opinions. Yeah, that's a, no, that's a great, that's a great call out. Uh, we at Amazon drive roadmaps from customer feedback. We call it working backwards. There are lots of people that have been asking, you know, when is support coming to this language or that language? Uh, you know, if you're a customer, you have an account manager, let them know. If you don't have one of those, let us know on social media. Let us know in the chat because we're, we're always looking, uh, looking to build these features out for, for those that are asking for it. So please, please. Yeah, please. Daniela, when is support coming for Fortran? <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> now okay I, I have a i have a even sillier question for you what does this look like when you run the profiler on the profiler we actually do run the profiler on the profiler all parts of the profiler are being profiled wow <laughs> okay there you have it <laughs> I, I feel like that's an anticlimactic answer but people in chat were yeah. like oh i'll get you here and then Oh, yeah. we already already covered it. <laughs> like, it's secret. I cannot show it to you, but we make sure that our service is uh, running extremely well, so that you guys can take the most advantage. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I, I I joke that we like to dog food our own services, and there are certain services that have really big stories here. But in addition to using Koguru on our actual applications here at Amazon and AWS, actually using the profile on the profiler is probably the most meta example I could probably come up for with that. So. Uh, thank you for that. Great. Um, just very quickly, and I'm, um, well, I won't have time to do this probably, but uh, you were asking, Nick, you were asking me how to start the profiler. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need to change any code. There is a way to change code. I'll explain uh, when you want to do that. Uh, but to start your application together with the, um, the profiling thread or the profiling agent, you want to supply on the command line a Java agent with the name of your of uh, the, the profiler Java agent, and that's it. And uh, either you want to set up uh, um, the uh, environment variable separately on the on the same command command line. It doesn't matter. But the point is that it's literally a single uh, command line where uh, that, that starts your application. There's no need to code. Having said that, if you want to start the, the profiler by changing the code, you can do that as well. And this would be useful for things like uh, running Lambda. And it will be to do that, uh, we provide code snippets during uh, the, the onboarding experience. And uh, it's literally importing the uh, your import statements, uh, starting the profiler, and then and, and wrapping the logic of, uh, of your function. So that is pretty much it. I mean, the, the, it doesn't get any easier than that. It's super easy to start the profiling. Awesome. So in recap here, we covered a lot here in, in, in just the profiler section. But again, introduction to Amazon Koguru, two primary parts, sort of the passive and the active phases. The active phase here being profiler, which Daniel, you just showed us in action and gave us a, a very deep dive on, be able to profile your applications with no changes to your code. And, and just there at the end, you showed us an example of what kicking off that profiling actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to stop sharing my screen. I think we've had enough. Awesome. <laughs> well, trust me, if I could be here all day, I would uh, if it wasn't for us keeping the other guests that were that are about to share okay. here. Okay. But again, in, in, 
in the spirit of today's episode, we're, t- we're doing a fewer launches, but diving a little bit deeper. Koguru is one that is definitely befitting of that, again, with these two very different parts, but, but extremely viable in, in their own rights. Daniela, thank you again. This, this demo was amazing and you were great. Thank you very much. Awesome. This is a first, Rob. We've got two guests for the exact same launch, but Koguru, like we said before, it's a lot of different bits and pieces to it. So again, here talking to us about the second part, Koguru Reviewer is Nikunj Vaidya, uh, Senior Solutions Architect here at AWS. Nikunj, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nick and Rob, for having me. Yeah, welcome. It's really interesting. This is, like Nick said, you know, this is the first time we've kind of taken two different demos on the same product, but I think that it warrants it because we really have two very distinct features here. So uh, can you give us an overview of uh, what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, so basically, I think um, we want to actually, uh, I want to give you a quick overview of uh, what Code Guru Reviewer does. But before that, let me quickly just address what is the exact problem that Code Guru addresses. Right? So in a nutshell, if you think of it as Code Guru helps to automate and harden the code review and catches those difficult to find defects at a very early stage of the development. So what do we mean by those difficult to find defects? Right? These are the defects which are uh, in the categories of like the race condition, the data corruption, the resource leaks, the sensitive information leaks. These are the issues not only are they difficult to identify, but uh, uh, even once you identify to really root cause the issue and to really build a fix in a very limited amount of time when the issue is happening on the production network, it makes it a little bit more challenging. So these are the issues which CodeGuru helps to discover at an early stage of development. Now, if you compare it with uh, the traditional code review system that we have as of today, right? So first, it's very challenging and time-consuming for even most of the most experienced code reviewers, right? The SMEs who get involved in code review also uh, to identify the problematic code and also to ensure that no problematic code is left behind uh, before the application is shipped to the customer. It, it's very difficult for uh, for an SME, not only from technical point of view, they are very technically competent, but just considering the fact that the human is involved in there, uh, there are a lot of variables that the person has to uh, balance with. Secondly, these issues, if they are not caught at an early stage, they can easily slip to the existing review mechanism. And these review mechanisms which are existing ones are, uh, you can think of it as like the unit test or the manual code reviews that happen. This can potentially delay the code approval also. And kind of pretty much takes away the valuable time from the SME who are engaged into doing some high value tasks in, in, in doing the code reviews for every commits that are coming in, right? And as you can imagine, in a release process, as the release, we come near to the timeline or the deadline of the release, um, the rate of the commits keeps increasing. And that pretty much uh, pulls in the SMEs and they are kind of pretty much engaged doing the code reviews at a high rate, whereas their value addition could be at building out futuristic technology or the value addition that they are doing for them, for their company. So in a way, what happens is um, the other aspect of it, right, is most of the human code reviews are focused on the business logic very less on the functional correctness. And this is where CodeGuru complements the human code reviews and offloads those human uh, code reviews from, let them focus on the business logic. And the functional correctness checking is, is carried out by CodeGuru by not only checking it out, but also providing the actionable recommendation um, to, to really address and fix those lines of code which are at risk. 
Yeah. So, so I, it's a kind of a, just a very short overview that I want to kind of give you. Yeah. And I, I want to sort of, um, you know, reiterate one of the points that you made, which is that the emphasis of existing code reviews, while on an ideal world would be to make sure our code is optimal in every way, it largely becomes focused on, is our code doing what we want it to do? And then not necessarily an afterthought, but all on the while, we'll be trying to assess, like, is it doing it in a performant fashion? But oftentimes that's limited, even for, you know, very experienced engineers to be able to assess the true effectiveness of the code to accomplish that. I, and Rob joked before, you know, we're not compilers. That's not the best use of our own brains and our, and our own abilities. So to my understanding here, CodeGuru Reviewer is, uh, is a sect uh, or a set of features within CodeGuru that enable us uh, and customers and developers to be able to actually have that automated introspection of code for its functional or operational effectiveness. Is that correct? Exactly. So if you think of it as uh, just from the developer workflow perspective, then the developer has built this code and pushes the code onto the code repository. Uh, that is the time when uh, the developer would generate a pull request mm -hmm. and kind of initiate the code review process. When we configure CodeGuru, CodeGuru is just listening to those pull request notifications. So as soon as a particular repo is associated and you generate a pull request notification, the notification goes to the CodeGuru review. This is the time when uh, either the human get involved uh, in, in doing the review for the business logic and the code guru reviewer focuses on the functional character. Now, Nikunj, I've, I don't know if we have a bit of a chicken and an egg problem here, right? Because if we say that, you know, uh, engineers are limited in, in what they can accomplish in, in code reviews, you know, I, we've heard that code is powered by machine learning. And, and for folks that have been around the block of machine learning, they know that there's a training phase that's often involved, right? So uh, if code guru reviewer is going to be able to surface these inefficiencies in our code, what has that been trained on, right? We, we clearly need a, a training set there. Absolutely. That's a very good point. In fact, uh, CodeGuru is actually powered by the machine learning models that are trained with millions of code reviews uh, that have been conducted within internal to Amazon as well as uh, on the open source project. So you can think of it as like the decades of uh, learning experience and decades of uh, uh, knowledge and expertise that we have within the Amazon is kind of poured in into these machine learning models and now are kind of made available to all of our customers to be leveraged. Awesome. So yeah, just essentially, you know, not just automating code reviews in a way that are, are quicker with the same level of quality that can already exist, but just to a extent of experience and a breadth of experience with millions of code reviews of data that any one individual engineer may never be able to amass in, in sort of their lifetime. Exactly. Exactly. And that's where I think that's the beauty of automation that comes into picture. And uh, in fact, um, uh, not only from the aspect of the number of the, um, the amount of learning that has happened, but think of it as various different segments of expertise that you want, that you need to do a code review. There are a lot of different functional expertise that you need and, and you would need potentially in realistic case, multiple SMEs kind of function uh, looking at the code and reviewing the code. What CodeGuru offers is, um, and I will um, share my screen at some point of time to show you the various different categories of issues uh, that uh, CodeGuru focuses on and uh, helps you to uncover it at an early stage of a development cycle. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. Like you said, there's different levels of expertise to, to understand the different downstream impacts of, of code. And I think there's no better testament to this than the demo we just saw with Daniela, right? 
uh, profiling your application as it's actually running in either your test or your integration environment is another step downstream from actually authoring the code and merging those PRs into your code base. And so if you can catch that higher upstream, you don't even need to, you know, you know, or you're reducing the cost of catching that bug down the line. And this has been a recurring theme we've found here. The earlier you catch a bug, not just in its existence in, in your, your live application uh, or your live environment, but in the development process sort of wholesale, you are saving yourself dollars, cents, and developer cycles. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the ROI is very high, uh, considering the fact that you would have already a profiler which is doing the runtime, uh, execution, performance, evaluation, and you have a code guru reviewer which is doing static code analysis. Um, you would have a kind of a feedback loop also between these two different functionalities, right? Uh, there are recommendations that could be uh, recommended by the profiler and you would go through the same cycle of implementing that code and really running it and uh, uh, and integrating the part of the code in your uh, main, main base. Based on your description so far, it sounds like the, the workflow is, you know, I, I build a feature, I submit pull request, and then CodeGuru is going to run automatically and start leaving comments and saying, hey, look, in this line in this file, uh, there's this potential problem, right? What are the integrations? What, what kinds of repositories does this work with? Oh yeah, that's a that's a good question. So as of today, CodeGuru reviewer is uh, associated with uh, supports the Bitbucket uh, repositories. Uh, it supports uh, the GitHub enterprise based uh, uh, repositories. Uh, you could say the public GitHub as well as the GitHub enterprise or enterprise. And GitHub enterprise itself is also GitHub enterprise cloud and GitHub enterprise server, which are kind of self-hosted server. And of course, AWS code commit based uh, code repositories. So I actually have a follow-up question to that. And it's one that I saw in, in chat as well. So I don't want to claim uh, all the credit for this. But mm -hmm. uh, whenever we want, we're, you know, as developers integrating another tool or a third-party API that, requ that requires access to something like my code base on GitHub, that can be a very scary proposition, right? We always want to make sure that we're only giving a tool the amount of privileges it needs Principle of least permissions, you know, we understand that for IAM. Um, what sort of permissions does CodeGuru Reviewer need to actually perform this analysis on my code base? No, in fact, actually, I think uh, from uh, from the CodeGuru Reviewer perspective also, and I will show you in my demo also, uh, that more from the perspective of when you, uh, it is the time when you actually associate the CodeGuru Reviewer to the uh, repository. During that period of time, you are authorizing the CodeGuru Reviewer to use uh, and and use the service uh, of pull request modification. Now, once you do that, and the channel is established, and you are able to log in into uh, using the credentials that you use in the in those in that repository itself. Once that channel is established, all the communications that happen are encrypted, and so pretty much uh, all the code scanning that happens and the recommendations that are generated that are all encrypted and the security uh, is in place. And, and we will walk through those uh, steps on how we associate that specific repository with either GitHub or with uh, any other service provider. Awesome. Yeah, no, understanding that there's, uh, you know, that code is, is, is encrypted end to end as it goes to the actual reviewer service is really valuable. I guess to be a little more pointed, when we give another service or application permissions to interface with, let's say, our GitHub repo, uh, there's, there's nuance to the level of permissions that we can give it, right? Like... Uh, assuming you own it, you have root permissions, you can do everything, you're the owner of the bucket. For CodeGuru, I would assume it wouldn't need root access to your repository. It probably only needs certain permissions. 
Do you have examples of what those permissions are? Absolutely. I think it is more of uh, more in the times of more in the lines of uh, reading the repository. I think that mm -hmm. is the main thing uh, that we want to read the repository. We want to list the repositories that we have. And uh, once you associate with that particular repository, you're able to read that code. Then, uh, then pretty much uh, whatever operations happen, we are uh, outside the repository. So it's, it's within the code group service itself. So that particular IAM role, which it will be using to access those repositories, will potentially be limited to reading the repositories. Awesome. Well, I know we'll get into a demo in just a little bit, but I guess you've sold me on the value of some of automated ML-powered uh, code review. But we're, when we're talking about the, the broader space of, of detecting bugs, I know we saw sort of the, the more active phase with Profiler before. Um, how, is reviewering, how is reviewer playing in sort of this broader ecosystem of bug detection tools? Yeah, no, so I think uh, from CodeGuru reviewer perspective, um, what it focuses on, and, and that is, I think, the main key uh, value that it brings it is, it focuses on difficult to find defects. Those are the ones which are found uh, at an early stage. We are not talking about the syntax error checking or the style checking, right? Those are mostly covered at an early stage of development by the IDEs itself. The developer builds the code in the IDE, then uh, pushes the code into the code repository. By the time potentially unit testing is also done, the code is functional. So we are looking for very difficult to find defects that are, that are supposed to be uh, caught at an early stage. So what reviewer brings in is uh, the value addition is uh, basically those hard to find defects is very important. Apart from that, uh, the reviewer, what it does is uh, it is backed up with machine learning models. So this machine learning models uh, is, is the decades of experience that I mentioned about uh, of um, analyzing and uh, finding complex patterns of defects that, that can be caught and uh, uh, not only can be identified, but even the actionable recommendations will be provided. So once the actionable recommendations are provided, those actionable recommendations pretty much provide you a snippet of the code that you can use in your in your code to replace the identified uh, lines of code that is at risk, right? And um, and not only that, but it's, it it provides you a kind of a feedback loop between profiler and the reviewer. Yeah, uh, I know Rob was joking before. He's he's holding out for the code writing as a service, uh, but I guess we're just going one step closer to that with writing something and getting back what you should have written instead. Uh, well, we'll see how far that gets, and I, I guess that begs the question: Can we see that in action, Nikunj? Can we actually see what happens when I submit my garbage code and Kogru reviewer rips it apart? Absolutely. So let me quickly share my screen. Uh, give me just one minute. I'm in this uh, starter page of Amazon Code Guru, and on the left-hand side, you can see there is a nice classification of reviewer and profiler. These are the two different functionalities. We will go onto the dashboard first and just see from the perspective of how the Code Guru dashboard looks like. This is an aggregation of reviewer and profiler, so you can see the profiler recommendations that I would have gotten in the past, uh, the reviewer recommendations that I have gotten until now, the lines of code metered. This is uh, counting the number of lines of code that it has uh, reviewed. And uh, this is the, uh, the metered word would indicate that these are the lines which does not include the comments or just the one curly brace uh, in a line or so. It's basically significant of code uh, in a single line. So those are the lines of code that are counted and are maintained here. And these are the number of pull requests. So as I was mentioning, when you configure code guru, 
and associated with a particular repository, during that period of time, it will basically subscribe to the pull request notification. And these are the pull request notifications that it would potentially get. So this is uh, the pull request. And we will go in into the reviewer. Reviewer has two main things to this. Uh, one is associated repository. And second is the code reviews. So code reviews is nothing but a, my code review history that has happened in the past. And associated repositories is the place where I can associate a particular repository. And this is pretty much uh, coming on board, right? So it is as simple as um, you just click on associate repository. You have uh, four different options. Uh, you can select AWS code commit, GitHub. Uh, GitHub itself uh, is also the public GitHub or the GitHub Enterprise Cloud version. And uh, it is as simple as when you when you connect to GitHub, you can just click on connect to GitHub. And once you connect to GitHub, you will be basically looking at all the repository listing in your GitHub account. Right? So you could you could do that. However, let us say if I select AWS code commit uh, and I look into my code repository location, this is the listing of um, uh, repositories that are associated with my code commit. So, so if I pick up one particular repository and I associate it, so this association will take potentially around say maybe around 20 to 30 seconds. And during this period of time, it is, uh, it is uh, subscribing to the pull request notification of that particular repository. So it takes a little while, maybe around 20, 30 seconds. And once it is associated, you can start working on it. So here it is already associated. And uh, as I showed you that uh, it, you can associate it. Now, for the demo, I will use uh, this particular uh, repo, which is uh, basically the Java code, which we will analyze it. This is uh, hosted on the GitHub account. On uh, application is on the GitHub. And uh, in this particular case, I have this code on my GitHub. So if I am a developer, I have been committing this code and pushing the code into the code repository. I will go into the pull request uh, page and this is the place where I want to initiate a pull request, initiate a code review. And uh, the first thing I will do is uh, basically I will create a new pull request. And uh, you can select um, uh, from which branch to which branch you want to do the merging. So in this particular case, I'm selecting from feature one to master branch. And this is my code depths, right? This is a particular uh, uh, piece of code which, uh, uh, which, uh, which does the event. It's, it's basically an event handler for uh, tracking the shipments. So once I do that, I click create pull request. And once I click on create the pull request, me as a developer, I can just sit on the screen and wait for a little while until I get the recommendations from code guru. And it takes approximately around, I would say, uh, maybe around five, 10 minutes in this particular case, this particular uh, application that uh, we are running. And if we go out here on code guru side, on the code guru dashboard, dashboard panel, you can see the number of pull requests has increased from 7 to 8. So it has gotten the uh, pull request notification. And now if you go into code reviews, here you can see that I have one more entry which is showing in the pending state. And this is right now, the churning is happening. Uh, the code is scanned, it is being run over the machine learning models, and the recommendations will soon be generated based upon this. So this takes a few minutes. And uh, it will give me the output for this. Just for the for the time sake, what I can do is I can show you uh, one of the pull requests that I've done in the past, uh, just to show you the types of uh, issues that it will catch and it will flag, right? So 
uh, if you see from here, these are the various different recommendations that you would get. There are approximately around, yeah, there are five recommendations that were given by Amazon Codebury. So uh, think of it as if I'm a developer, uh, I'm sitting out here, I've submitted a pull request, pretty much on the same page, I'm getting all the recommendations back. And from here, I can see that uh, it has identified this piece of code and uh, it has identified that I'm using the list object, right? So list objects is a API which is now deprecated and it's outdated. It is recommending to use list objects v2. So in fact, uh, it provides you with a link to that API. And here you can see there are all the details about that particular API on how you use it. Uh, here you can see the list object is a uh, deprecated API and now it's replaced with v2. So you have all the details that are uh, needed Apart from that, the second part it found was uh, it is finding certain piece or pieces of code which are which has the thread concurrency uh, risk. What that means by what what it means by that out here is here we are doing a simple get command for a particular entry for a particular uh, entry in the hash map, and we are trying to read the value out of it. Based upon that. If we don't get anything, we will create a new value and we'll try to put in a new object in there. And that new object is uh, is being done using the put. Now, what happens is if you have multiple threads that could be running concurrently, one by the time one thread is, is looking at this the and it moves to the next one, the other thread may have created an object already. And the original thread might take might be trying to create an object when the object is already there. So it might either overwrite it or it might go into some kind of an error condition. And uh, and, and that is uh, that is the risk that it has identified. And so it what it does is it even provides the recommendation that rather than using put, can you use put if absent. So that way, uh, even if the other thread has created it, your, uh, your code will handle that situation and you will not face an issue. So the things that I find it very cool out here when I, I start running into this is there are some good examples that are given with all the recommendations. Right? So if you go out here, you will see a particular code, how it is using this put if absent uh, in this existing code. So, so that's, that's the cool part about it, uh, where it is uh, providing all that information. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I was just going to point out, if we, if we go back to the, the, you know, the, the comments that we were just looking at, it's, there's a lot of ways when we think about the way of improving static code reviews in some sort of automated fashion. There's a lot of greenfield in how we can do that. And I think the thing that's most exciting here to me is that this identifies the code block. It is going to describe to you what the problem is fundamentally with that code block. It will provide a proposed fix too. Um, because just knowing the problem doesn't mean that, you know, you have arrived at a or uh, an optimal type of fix. And then to actually see an example of that in, you know, you just link what looks like the source code to like Hadoop to, so to give someone sort of the peace of mind of, okay, well, this is actually a, an example of how this is implemented in the wild. Like that really just sort of strings together the, the entirety of, of, of what I would want in a, in a code review process here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very clear, exactly like you mentioned, it, it describes the problem, it provides you fix. And it provides you with more information, including with an example. And this is what we call it as actionable recommendation. That uh, it does not necessarily just point it out 
but it also provides you the fix that is that can be utilized. So in this uh, in this particular case, uh, it, it is as simple as we are instantiating S3 client on pretty much every Lambda invocation, and it might it would it would tell you that you might want to use the static initialization or use static variables so that it could be reused. So you could potentially just reuse the existing HTTP connections and and not necessarily uh, create it every time. In fact, it gives you a link of how or what are the best practices for working for AWS Lambda. This particular uh, recommendation is more uh, geared towards uh, here, say for example, if we are listing objects from NS3, we are collecting out here, it is requesting that you are not doing uh, a paginating, pagination check because the output that you might get is the first page. Uh, you might need to loop through the output to just ensure that you've gotten all output and there is no other page left. So, so in a way, it is it is good to have uh, this always caught as a practice, and, and and this is the place where these these are the places where I feel I really feel that the automated recommendations that comes in for any pieces of line of code, uh, it will it will flag it and it will let you know. And lastly, it, uh, it provides you a recommendation where in this particular case, in this code, you have created a resource and now you're kind of waiting in a loop and here there is a while loop. And this is the usual tendency that, uh, that is taken that we provide, we, that we wait in a while loop until the resource is created and we keep checking whether the resource is created or not. This may not be the best use of your CPU and memory. And, and that's the reason why there is this uh, new functionality, new API, which was uh, the waiters feature was introduced that you could utilize that uh, waiters uh, uh, API and in fact it gives you a link for that too so if you go in here and uh, watch the this is a full-fledged blog on how to use waiters you know, with examples in the code that will give you very detailed guidance on how the waiters can be used in your code so i'm not personally super familiar with waiters in particular but essentially the you know and correct me if my misunderstanding or my understanding is wrong here, but CodeGuru Reviewer can even make suggestions where there could be a more optimal asynchronous implementation as opposed to, you know, the this synchronous implementation here. Is that essentially something that we're seeing? Uh, pretty much in, line, in that line. Because waiters, uh, you have uh, async waiters and you could have different types of waiters which are in falling. So you could utilize and implement it in different ways that you want and it guides you through that uh, different option, uh, this particular block. But exactly to your point is, if it sees, uh, and it goes more towards, uh, more from the profiler perspective also, right? Daniela was showing you the visualization, and in fact, from your visualization of the code, you could potentially see what are those function blocking calls, and what are the calls which are kind of waiting in a timed out mode or waiting, that gives you a kind of an idea that what are these functions which are uh, spending much more time than required. So those performance issues are also something which is very important to be caught by the profiler. And from the reviewer perspective, it will identify any optimization that you can do from the code perspective before before even building out the code. Yeah, this this start, sort of starts to come full circle to some of the stuff that Rob was talking about before. You know, when you really think about what your most expensive lines of code can be, well, there's clearly some implementations that can just objectively be suboptimal, which it seems like reviewer does a really good job of catching here. But then, you know, you're in, in practice, your most expensive lines of code can be due to something that's not explicitly included in your code, which is traffic patterns and utilization and, and like, you know, how your application scales up, uh, essentially. And that's something that, you know, 
profiler, which Danielle covered before, would cover. And the idea is that we shouldn't, the reviewer should uh, catch some of these issues that could cause problems downstream, but we would rather catch those up here in the, in the code integration process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, to the point with, which, uh, that Rob covered in a very early part of the phase where he was talking about how he was doing the string copy operation, the word that you use was very important to uh, make that uh, subjective. Uh, and, and, and really, Code Guru really objectively finds out what are the recommendations that you should implement. Because there are many other aspects, uh, many other point of view and, and approaches that can be taken. And it can be put pretty much subjective uh, based upon what kind of code you are building out. And Code Guru Reviewer does a good job in, in looking at the code. Because what it does is when you, when the code, code is scanned, right? When you, when the pull request notification is sent, uh, when the code is scanned, the code which is in, which is, uh, uh, covered within that pull request is the only code which is, which is scanned by the code guru. But in fact, if there are two different files, say for example, they are into it, those whole files are read in entirety. So it provides, it gives uh, itself a, a proper context of what is the code flow looking like. And from based upon that, it, it creates these uh, objective recommendations and, and throws it out in the, uh, in the uh, output. Kanj, I've got two questions. Sure. One is, you know, the examples you're showing us here are, are fairly in-depth with respect to how you use the AWS SDK. And that's very interesting. So yeah, kind of connecting this one to one of the news items that, that we covered at the beginning of the segment, if I start writing, uh, let's say, a connection pool manager for RDS, and I just write this as a standalone Java package, does CodeGuru have the ability to detect, hey, it looks like what you're trying to do at a, at a conceptual level is... You're writing a connection pool manager. Don't do that. Use RDS proxy instead. Right? Can it can it do things like that? Do you have examples like that that are kind of? I'm not quite sure how to describe it exactly, but you know, are, are right, more meta, right, right. right? It's not like this API call has a v2 de is deprecated or has a v2 uh, in inline replacement. More like this pattern is not recommended. And, and I think you're alluding to that, but I didn't see an example here. Is that something you can talk to? Yeah, yeah, and and pretty much it goes in the line with, and I'm I'm sharing this particular screen. Uh, this screen will actually provide you with much more detailed information exactly to answer your question. What are the different categories of issues that CodeGuru Reviewer can, can make comments on and, and can detect? So what, what this means is uh, there are specific detectors in CodeGuru that are uh, integrated and these are various different detectors in various different categories which can detect these kind of issues and can make recommendations. For example, the one which you are mentioning about is AWS Best Practices. It has the knowledge about how the APIs are supposed to be used. And if those APIs are potentially used in a non-optimal way, or uh, if there is a better way of using it, or maybe an incorrect way, it will point out that. So AWS best practices is just one part of it. And the other examples that, I, that we went through in the, uh, in the demo was more in terms of concurrency, red concurrency, and so on. But to answer your question, basically, that would fall into this category of database best practice. I, I guess... Okay, I'm, but, but more yeah. Oh, sorry. Let me just finish this thought. But specifically, like, a human reviewer, you know, looking at that thing, they would say, well, okay, I see that you're creating a, a several different connections to RDS. What are you doing with those connections? And then you look at the structure and you just look at how they're being stored. And you're like, oh, okay, it looks like you're creating a connection tool, right? The, does the... Does CodeGuru have the ability to kind of 
take that macro level approach and realize like what you're doing is creating some sort of pool? Is that is that what you should be doing with respect to best practices? Uh, so, so from the point of view of CodeGuru, uh, CodeGuru Reviewer, what it does is it, it would uh, read through the code and hopefully the file that is included in the full request, right? So say for example, usually when a developer would would uh, make a, cha- a code change, there, there would be some uh, level of code change that will be included in that full request. Now, as long as that code change has proper full detailed context of, uh, say for example, number of connections that are being, that, are, that, that will be spawned or uh, the number of connections that will be created, all of those information, as long as it is available for CodeGuru to uh, review it, it will be able to make uh, recommendations on that. So, mm-hmm. so definitely it, it, uh, it is, as long as it can understand the piece of code and it is aware of a much more optimal pattern that with which the code can be improved upon, uh, the recommendation will be generated. Yeah, yeah. To, to one quick follow up to that. So let's let's say let's take another case. I, I think the the RDS example is, is is a bit contrived, maybe. But let's say I'm writing a my own Redis driver for Java, and I have a GitHub repo where I keep all of this code. And what I'm doing is constantly updating that repo, right? And I'm saying, hey, actually, this put requests in this driver is being deprecated. I am deprecating this function. I I am the 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 maintainer of that mm. library. I'm deprecating that API call in favor of the put v2. So does CodeGuru have the ability to understand that? And if so, how? That's a good question. So uh, I think uh, from CodeGuru perspective, what it will it it, will, it focuses on is the set of APIs uh, which are AWS APIs which are published and it is aware of and it has knowledge about which ones are the current one, which one are the deprecated one. And uh, from the uh, Java API's perspective, for example, if there is a, a specific uh, API which is purely related to Java and nothing to do for, from the AWS API perspective, that also it would keep track of. However, um, from the feedback perspective, from a, a user perspective, if you want to provide a feedback, the feedback that you can provide is uh, more from the perspective of the recommendation that was generated, whether it was useful or not. So, uh, in fact, actually, in those CodeGuru uh, reviewer comments that showed up in the uh, on the GitHub page, you have a small icon out there. You can select whether plus or minus depending on whether the recommendation was useful to you. So that is the kind of feedback that CodeGuru accepts from the users, from our customers, and uh, it will provide uh, an an input uh, into uh, CodeGuru service that which are the recommendations which are more useful compared to others. Uh, so as of today, it is restricted to mainly those kind of feedback that we can provide. Okay, let, let me try and reframe the question very, very slightly. So what we saw was the S3, uh, an example of an S3 API in the AWS SDK, mm-hmm. where it says this has, this has a, a V2 that you should use instead. We also saw CodeGuru commenting on the use of the concurrent hash map within the Java standard library, right? So it's clearly knows about those two things. What I'm wondering is if I include a third-party library, that third-party library on its documentation or its GitHub repo says very clearly this particular API call should no longer be used. It should be deprecated in favor of these two API calls. Does CodeGuru have the ability to fold that in? Or a third-party um, library? Right. Uh, from the third-party library, I'm uh, as far as I know, it would not be able to. But we can, because, because from the point of view of, uh, say, for example, the libraries that it is aware of, right? Those are more in terms of the ones which are, say, for example, Java-based or from the 
AWS APIs perspective, those are the ones that it needs to focus on, or, or, or it, it, the detectors are built on that. Say, for example, uh, what you're suggesting is if, if there is a way that we can provide an input into service that which libraries are uh, outdated and which ones are not, that is something that, uh, that we can um, consider it as something which uh, we should be looking for if, if there is a, a demand for having that kind of a capability. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I guess like circling back to Rob's point before about, you know, hey, we, AWS just launched, you know, RDS proxy, right? When can we expect code? Can we expect CodeGuru to, to implement best practices like that in sort of the wheelhouse of how, you know, the, these, these sorts of models are trained under the hood in order to have that as a possibility would then need to be trained on, on PRs and uh, repos that then incorporate that and the model would then be able to hopefully figure out, you know, that this is a set of behavior that is, uh, you know, building your own connection pooling and an advisable sort of, you know, reconciliation for that would be maybe using a managed tool like RDS proxy. But um, yeah, the, you know, the advisement on around new tools and, and like what the time frame looks like for that is an interesting question going forward. Not one that I'd imagine there's some sort of SLA on, but hopefully over time we can expect to see some of those those AWS best practices uh, incorporated at at sort of the theoretical level there too. Yeah, and apart from that, I think uh, as I was mentioned, I think uh, from the examples that were covered, mostly this is one uh, this is the one which is also very important, which is the sensitive information leak. This is basically uh, a very important uh, aspect of it, where uh, any kind of an sensitive information, not only from the code perspective, but say for example, any logs or any exceptions that are thrown out, it wants to ensure that none of the sensitive information is leaked out in there. So there is a, a good amount of detectors built on that also. But uh, recently also we have introduced the input validation. This is something also very important as a detector that uh, if you are not doing input validation, you have more risk for the code to really inject either some malicious attack or some kind of an unintentional service component changes or so that could impact your application uh, well-being. So, so in a way, uh, these are various different types of detectors that are integrated within CodeGuru and uh, it will it will provide uh, the actionable recommendations based upon these. Awesome. Well, um, you know, we're, we're creeping up on almost two hours here on on CodeGuru, which is awesome. There's been so much to talk about. And and I guess some people joined us later on, but to sort of recap, covered again, CodeGuru, sort of this, I guess, you know, in my own words, uh, this like Swiss army knife to, to help improve and, and cut out many of the problems that exist in the software authoring and, and testing and profiling sort of life cycle. Uh, and we saw sort of these two main aspects, sort of the, the, the more passive side here with reviewer that can assess, you know, your PRs and, and your code uh, sort of as is for explicit issues or, or uh, you know, use of use of bad practices. And then previously we had Daniela talk to us a little bit about profiler and show us how you can ascertain more insights into the, the operational inefficiencies or the finding the most expensive lines of code based on uh, your application running with its expected traffic patterns. So, so truly a very, a very wide breadth of feature sets and, and sort of surface area for what CodeGuru can cover here. Well, and I think more, more importantly, it, the, the framework and the way of operating that is put in place here immediately implies that this is something that's going to con continue to improve, right? The fact that you have a model that is driving these things, the fact that, you know, you were able to show us a slide that's like, these are the, the factors that we can make recommendations based on today. 
that immediately tells me that, of course, you're going to add more in the future based on customer feedback. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, as as you go further, I think there is a lot of requests to be, that we are getting for support for various different languages. So if there are uh, such demands, please uh, provide us more information about it so that we can prioritize the feature uh, support for that. Awesome. And uh, this is you know one thing we always like to talk a little bit about, especially now that the service is GA, a lot of customers have been able to get their hands on this in the preview phase of it. And I have a little bit of a list here. We see that for profiler, customers like Atlassian, Eagle Dream, and youcanbook.me are using that to better understand uh, and reduce their costs of their applications in, in production. And then I uh, see here Dev Factory and Renga, active users of the uh, Koguru Reviewer. So uh, always excited to have these, these launch partners that uh, work and, and get hands-on with the service uh, and, and get to see that value themselves. So very happy to see that. And the golden question that I think a lot of people have been wondering, in addition, the second most popular question after when is this coming to the language that I like the most, um, but how can I get started with CodeGuru? I believe that there uh, is a set of demo applications that are out there. And from a cost perspective, I believe CodeGuru is free for up to 90 days to use. Is that true? That is true. Awesome. That is absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great. We have a sample repository that actually covers the exact demo that Nikun showed us today. But without further ado, Nikunj, thank you for joining us again. Uh, first time we've had two guests on to cover, uh, you know, one launch, but I, I think it really warranted it. You know, reviewer and profiler, uh, two very different value propositions, but I think they all bubble up to solving problems in, in software development, uh, and that's something that affects anyone that works in that space. So very excited to have gotten to show this, Nikunj. Again, thank you for joining us. Last demo, last session of the day, but by no means the least important. We have a very exciting launch today talking a little bit about AWS app to container I won't sort of spill the beans on what it does just yet, but to tell us a little bit more about it, the expert in the room here, uh, Prakash Aradhya, uh, Lead Product Manager on Application Modernization here at AWS, joining us to talk about this very exciting launch. So Prakash, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me here. Okay. Welcome. So we're talking app to container. I think there's a lot of sort of foundation laying we're going to want to do here to, to sort of give the lay of the land. And, and we can start, you know, very, very, very far upstream here. We're talking about modernizing applications. That can mean a lot of different things. That means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But especially we're talking about the move to the cloud. This takes some very particular, you know, technical meanings. We think of things like containerization, which I think is sort of intuitive in this conversation. Uh, we think of things maybe like, you know, moving a monolith to microservices and so on. There's a lot of different things here. I know the app to container primarily deals with Java and .NET applications. So why don't we start there? What are the roadblocks with respect to modernizing Java and .NET applications? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Nick. I mean, the modernization could mean many things to many people. I mean, sometimes people think modernization could be like something like, you know, you're bringing from a 50-year-old application to the today's world, right? That's not really what it means. I mean, we've been through the software development cycle over the years. I mean, we are probably talking about applications that were created like eight to ten years ago. I mean, you know, there are so many applications. The, the development cycle, the whole uh, the process, the, the development process of applications has changed so much over the years. I mean, things that were created like eight to ten years ago are not really. Uh, I mean, they're still usable. They're still uh, business. Uh, you know, like the, the, the logic is being run, and the business uh, uh, enterprise is running business around it. But I think you know they're not meant for today's uh, way of uh, you know developing applications and releasing applications. 
right? So like you mentioned, like, you know, the applications could be, it could be a, a big monolithic application. Like, you know, it's not really agile enough. It may take like three, four months to make any changes to the uh, code and redeploy and all the stuff. So in today's world, I mean, you know, the businesses cannot wait that long. They need to make a change today and deploy the change in like you know, in two hours, right? I mean, that's a level of agility. The businesses have to react to the changing market conditions, the competition, all kinds of stuff. So the agility is the most paramount important thing in the modernization. With all those applications sitting out there, uh, it's not possible, right? So when enterprises think about modernization, there are multiple ways they can do this, right? It could be like, you know, uh, you know they, they have these applications. They want to take advantage of the modern infrastructure, like you know, the, the new CICD management and monitoring of these applications. They can just take it, push it into the cloud, uh, like a whole migration of the VMs. Uh, you know, it's like a re-hosting application, right? That's one of the ways. I mean, there are many ways you could do it. One other way is it could be like, you know, you're refactoring the code, like some of the code that you have. For instance, like uh, .NET, right? Microsoft stopped supporting .NET. So it's kind of a, it's a, you know, unsupported thing uh, suddenly, right? So now there are like millions of applications that are sitting on .NET. So those applications needs to continue to uh, be supported by customers. And they need to, you know, have, need to find a, a newer platform, newer world, world. Maybe there's an opportunity to kind of, you know, refactor some of this code and, you know, continue to evolve the code. Uh, you know, so if you own the code and, you know, like if it's a custom application, it makes perfect sense. So you have developed the code and you have the code in house. You can do some refactoring and, uh, after refactoring, you can replatform it to the cloud environment. So that's an option you have. In some situations, uh, the enterprise customers have bought some, you know, uh, the, Commercial out of the bar, you know, shell applications. Some of those applications, you don't have anything. You don't have the code and it's just been sitting there for 10 plus years, but you still have a dependency on those applications in your business. And those applications, you probably just want to take advantage of the modern architecture. You want to just move it to the cloud, containerize it and move it to the cloud. So that's like replatforming. So there are a lot of uh, options customers have when it comes to modernization. So with that, I think uh, we, we were, uh, you know, we recognized there's an opportunity. And we launched two new set of tools last week. Uh, one is called a portability assistance for uh, .NET uh, applications, which really helps customers to kind of uh, take their .NET applications and you know, uh, you know, provide them the uh, ability to uh, look at the compatibility for the .NET code, which is a more open source and more uh, you know, evolving uh, platform. So they can, you know, as a customer, you can reduce the cost of deployment, the cost of running the applications. And they're not kind of modernizing the application to the newer mode, you know, that kind of stuff. Similarly, and, and in addition to reporting uh, system, we also launched uh, uh, container, which is the topic of today. So where we can help customers to take their applications, containerize it, and deploy to the, uh, the you know, the AWS. So uh, <laughs> lots to unpack here, right? In uh, to paraphrase some of what you said, essentially, when I gave you this sort of broad breadth of modernization means a lot of things you just went through and, and named you know a, a large number of them you know refactoring modernization modernization can mean everything from refactoring your code to general architecture to deployment infrastructure and so on and so forth what's exciting about today's session we're talking a little bit about apt container but there was also this other launch similarly the dot uh, net portability assistant tool or compatibility assistant tool so cool you touched a lot on on containerization but i think that's sort of as the name implies, what we're going to dive a bit deeper on uh, in this talk. You know, I'm familiar with containerization. I know many, many of our customers may be, but I think it's also important to sort of reestablish this baseline of why containerization mm -hmm. is important. 
uh, you know, Docker got very famous on the idea of, you know, building once and deploying anywhere as sort of the, the flagship mantra of containerization. But it's clearly more than just the ease of use of deploying software, right? Uh, there's a lot of downstream features that are enabled once you've sort of bought into this containerization framework. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Prakash. You know, what are the biggest values that customers find when they containerize their applications? Right. I think, I think that's a great point. I mean, you know, you, 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 you know, alluded to many, many of the benefits of containerization, like, you know, the agility and the portability. So you build once, runs anywhere. I mean, it's not something that new that we are hearing today, right? Like, you know, if you roll back 20 plus years ago, like Java, the whole premise of Java was like, you know, to be able to build an application on anywhere. In today's world, in the modern world, it's like, it's containers, right? Like everything fully packaged and there's no, nobody can complain about, oh, I missed all one dependency, you missed one library. So now you queue like, okay, complete package that I know that it works and it is tested and you just have to open it and run it and it should work. So, I mean, so developers don't have time to go and debug a lot of those things. They want to be able to focus on the business logic. They want to kind of, you know, continue to quickly take advantage of the infrastructure to kind of help you take care of all the, uh, the plumbing and the, you know, the, all this logistics. So those are the, uh, the benefits, like, in a way people want to containerize it, which is fantastic. But now the enterprises are a, a kind of a, 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 a mixed situation, right? I mean, Pretty much everybody, I think I know, there are some data points on the 90 plus customers, enterprises today, they are looking at creating all new applications in containerized uh, space, right? So that's great. So now you have, you are adopting a new methodology of creating applications in a containerized world, but at the same time, you have all these applications that are sitting there for years, you know, you know kind of using a different kind of system, right? Now, the managing of those applications, the, the whole CI/CD process, the whole uh, the, you know, the management aspects. So now as an enterprise, you need to deal with two different kind of systems. You need to hire people who can, you know, do both kinds of systems. There is no, I mean, you know, and at the same time, you may not even have people, you know, who knows the, 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 the legacy systems. So it becomes very challenging. So, so now customers like to streamline and have one set of tools to work for both sets of applications. And they are kind of looking for ways to kind of, you know, manage those and uh, streamline their whole operation cut cost and become efficient and you know, kind of you know have one way to manage their applications. So that's where I think by the containerization of uh, the existing applications, whether it's Java applications, Dartnet applications, like millions and millions of applications that are there, without throwing them away or rewriting them whole thing from the scratch, uh, the customers are looking for like you know, a seamless way to move to the modern world. That's where I, I think we should uh, talk about or get a little bit more specific, you know, like you said, there's lots and lots of existing .NET applications that might run on-premise, you know, they've built up over time, they've been running for years, and the .NET framework is, is lots of different things, right? And just to be 100% clear, what we're talking about here are ASP.NET applications running on IIS, is that right? For the containerization part, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, what we are supporting the containerization is like an app, an ASP.NET application running in the uh, IIS server, we can take that, containerize it, and move to the cloud. But the other uh, tool that we talked about, portability assistance, can help you, you know, refactor those .NET applications to, you know, uh, .NET Core based applications. Right, right. And, and and just to kind of add a little bit of context to that, because I know we had questions about .NET from people in the chat earlier. When we say ASP.NET applications on IIS, let's also try and give give a sense of the negative space. What is this not? So, for instance, this is not going to help you port a WPF application. 
that if you think about that, that doesn't even make sense because that is something that can only run on a Windows client anyway, right? right. And that is also full .NET that has no equivalent in .NET Core. So containerizing it makes no sense, right? So there's when we say .NET, I think we, we you know, to, in order to kind of get ahead of any confusion, um, there are what we're really talking about is a certain kind of .NET application that runs as a service that sits there and accepts you know HTTP or TCP requests. Uh, the one that you're talking about here, the tool you can run on any .NET application, but the but the, the the converter itself, what that's doing is containerizing the ASP.NET application that is running within IIS. Is that fair? Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, definitely some useful context on on sort of the the space of which App Container is gonna, or the types of applications App Container is gonna be working with here. But uh, you know, understanding the benefits of containerization are great. But uh, as 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 easy of a developer experience as they introduce for things like reproducible deployments and, and CI/CD downstream, the question of how you actually containerize the application or how you arrive at that containerized pipeline is still one that a lot of folks need to grapple with. And when we talk about costs of of, of, of building a pipeline or, or learning, you know, uh, how to do something in a different way. The, the educational cost of actually learning containerization and Docker and these underlying technologies is, is non-trivial. So when we're thinking about problems with actually moving to container, to containers or containerized architecture, what are the actual steps or problems that, that prevent people from doing so currently? So I think that if we talk about the benefits, it's great. I think it makes total sense for enterprises to kind of know, uh, to do, to do the actual containerization. But the process itself is a multi-step process, right? It's not just like, you know, you run something and you just containerize it, throw it away. I think the process is like, it requires understanding the, uh, the application itself, you know, whether it's a, you know, if it's a cards application or a custom application, like the kind of dependency to, dependencies it has for all the different kind of libraries, the third party libraries, whatever dependencies it has, understanding all the different dependencies, going through the, the profiling of code and understanding all, you know, even the network dependencies, the ports that are, they are running. So it's a quite a quite a lot of work to understand the application itself. So once you understand the application, and then it's a process of you know, creating the Docker uh, artifacts. Uh, you know, kind of you know, it's, it's a lot of manual work. You know, you need to write the Docker file, and you know, kind of trying to translate all those dependencies and the network dependencies into the Docker file and figure out how the Docker should look like. So the the skill set and the knowledge you need to understand how the cloud environment work is quite extensive. I mean, not everybody comes with that skill set, very limited resources within the enterprise who knows those stuff to do. And then once you create the, uh, you know, the Docker file and create the Docker image, and then, uh, you know, figuring out how to deploy this into the uh, container uh, platform, taking advantage of all the, like, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the load balancing and the, you know, VPC, all, all of the stuff. It's a, it's a multiple stages, but it, it is quite a lot of work and the skill set needed. So it, it is, uh, you know, it's just a big effort. Awesome. Uh, you know, I, I guess some examples that I've seen, you know, like you said, there's a lot of moving parts and, and that's, that's a, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a commonality and there's no reason to shy away from that, right? Like those costs can have a, a positive ROI downstream of containerization. But, you know, when we're talking about doing this, let's say on AWS, there's a few assets that, that are, that are very much necessary for this to, to be possible. I mean, we, we, the, the, the most foundational one is the Docker file, uh, you know, that's necessary for the application itself. But then things like if you're going to run on EC2, you need task definitions. You oh. need to handle your networking. You, you mentioned ports before, right? These are all things that uh, even separate from containerization, if we're talking about modernization moving to the cloud, are, 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 are table stakes, essentially, or necessary for, for doing this in an effective way. 
at least for you know Java and .NET applications. There's different ways to containerize applications on things like ECS and so on and so forth, right? But um, App2Container needs to help with these to be able to make that effective, right? Mm -hmm. So that's exactly the reason why we recognize customers are wanting to do this. They want to take advantage of the cloud world. So that's great. I mean, we do know see that there are there are the, the, the amount of our effort is more is quite extensive. So that's why we conceived this idea of after container and we created this and we launched it. And you know, we have been working with a lot of our customers, understanding their pain points and where we can really create value in this uh, tool. So the after container tool makes it really, really easy for you. Pretty much, I can show you when I show you the demo, you can see an application running in, in your local server and the application completely moved, containerized and moved to the cloud without touching the code, without going through, like, you know, the, using a lot of the default things. Right now, of course, it's like, you know, it's a happy path for normal things, but there are uh, opportunities where you could uh, be, you know, uh, you know, you could, you know, optimize it to, for a better performance in the cloud, right? So this is good. Uh, so yes, after container, it, it will, uh, you know, do the complete analysis of, of your application. It provides you a list of applications. Okay, here are all the applications that are currently running in your environment. You can uh, you know, analyze an application. And it will create the Docker image, Docker file, and it will create the uh, the task definitions or the uh, YAML file if you want to move to EKS. And then it will also provide you, you know, the, the, the cloud uh, pipelines, and you can seamlessly integrate with the, uh, the CI/CD uh, pipeline within the AWS or your own favorite CI/CD environment that you have. So it makes it really seamless and easy for you to kind of you know, take on the modernization effort uh, with very limited knowledge. So I feel like I have a very coarse understanding of, of, of the problems and the solutions that app to container solves, but I, I guess I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how this is working. What is the experience as a user? Because I understand up here, upstream, I have, you know, let's say my .NET or Java application. Uh, and then downstream here, I have ideally on the happy path, some containerized workload that's now running with all the necessary networking and bells and whistles that, that are required to do so on, on AWS. But what is the actual process by which we go from over here, start to finish? You know, like how, how do I use App to Container? So it's uh, it's pretty simple. So the uh, GA, the product is available on our product pages, and uh, you can just go download the app, you know, the tool to your local uh, machine wherever your application is running, or in the production server, or the like, you know, staging server. We generally recommend staging server. You know, we have multiple modes uh, that we can support. So technically, you, you you download it, install it on the local machine, and then you kind of initialize it. You connect that, uh, you know, the, the CLI. It's a command line tool. So you kind of you know, connect that to configure it to your AWS account. So uh, it, it's not mandatory, but you know, if you want to kind of eventually deploy it, you need to connect to the AWS account. So once you, uh, you know, configure it, so it's, it's just a series of commands that I'm going to show you in a little bit. A series of command. First, you'll do like you know, show me the inventory of applications, like you know, all the applications that are currently running in my server. So it will go through, you know, go through the server and it will dig up and then find out, okay, here are the applications that are currently running in your environment. They are eligible to be containerized. Great. So now I want to understand uh, a particular application that I want to containerize. I pick up that application and say, give me an analysis of this application. It runs through the analysis. And it, you know, it comes back with, okay, here is a, a big uh, list of things that I found. And these are, these are all the dependencies that you have, these are codes, all the stuff. And once that is done, then you say, okay, now I understand things. If I want to, as a user, if I want to make some modifications, I can mark it or, or I can just use the default. And then I say, okay, now give me a containerized 
application. So so use whatever the base image that you have. You know, depending on like you know, if you're using the .NET applications, you can use base image of Windows 2012 or 16, or, or like you know, then uh, for Java, you can use the Linux or Ubuntu, any of those base images, and then the application is containerized and it will give a complete give application. Then you can ask for okay, I want to now uh, do the uh, deployment, develop, you know, create all the deployment artifacts. Give me the task definitions. You know, it will give you the uh, the YAML file if you want to go to the EKS. You know, all of those artifacts are generated for you, and now you can go look at those artifacts and see if they're all good. And then you say, okay, just deploy this to my ECS instance, right? So it's it's like you know, just step by step, uh, like the way the, the workflow that you want to walk through. It kind of takes it and put it into the uh, your ECS account seamlessly without much effort. So to be as clear as possible, or like as as succinct as possible, because you you threw in a lot of additional context in addition. I, I guess we sort of merge the developer experience as well as what is happening under the hood. So let's sort of decouple those for brevity's sake. Essentially, uh, this is a after container is a CLI. It's open and available. You can download it, install it wherever you so desire. You then run this CLI on the infrastructure that is running the application that you're looking to containerize. Um, the result of that CLI command is ultimately going to return a set of applications that it detects running on that infrastructure, uh, of which we discussed some of the the, the valid uh, ones that, that it can containerize before, like ASP.NET, IAS web applications, Apache Tomcat, JBoss, and some other Java.NET application, web applications that are being assessed. And then once you as the user select one of those through the CLI, it will then generate these artifacts and, and essentially be like a CLI wizard for, for, for automating sure. the, the generation of these assets automatically by scanning. One of the interesting things that you touched on that I'm actually going to pass it over to Rob to talk about a little bit is, is you know, auto detection of things like dependencies, right? So every language has their own package managers and their ways of, of understanding this. But something that's really interesting to me is that and, and maybe I, I'm misspeaking here, but like this is essentially a, a running application that you can run and detect this and, and actually ascertain what all of the dependencies are during runtime, which is more than just assessing, you know, like a static repository and reading, you know, what's in my, uh, you know, requirements.txt in Python, right? You know, I'm not as familiar with .NET, uh, you know, like what are some of the challenges of actually understanding all of these, you know, all of these dependencies? Well, it's, I mean, you know, if you're doing it doing it manually, you know, you're probably like going and looking at the uh, scripts and understanding all the dependencies it has, and kind of you know getting a uh, a complete list of that is, is is quite a lot of work. I mean, some of the times the skill set required by the developers, I mean, some of these applications can be really really old, right? So in today's developers probably don't have much context. So that's where the challenge really lies, being able to kind of capture. When you're doing something manually, understanding all the dependencies, so that's what that's the burden this uh, the container kind of you know, takes that off from uh, you as a developer. So it will do that work for you. And, then, and again, you know, it's it's not like you know, it's not an extensive thing. It's uh, you know, there may be some uh, instances. I mean, based on the application that is currently running, it can uh, you know, pick up all the dependencies what it knows. But there could be some application dependencies that may not be uh, discoverable uh, by the tool. So if you're an expert user, you probably know, okay, where there's some, some dependencies missing. You could, I mean, you know, we recommend our customers that once you create the containerized uh, app, we recommend customers to do a lot of local testing of the containerized image before you move that into production. So during that time, you know, whatever the, the, the testing methodology that you're using with all your uh, testing, 
So when you run through those tests to make sure there's no dependency that is missing in the application that is containerized. Yeah, and just kind of make that crisp by way of example. I think I think uh, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. You tell me if this is uh, what you're talking about. But you know, what, one of the common use cases when you integrate an ASP.NET application with IIS is to use integrated AD authentication, right? Oh. And then and then, but but as far as the .NET app is concerned. That authentication flow is kind of magic. It's it's kind of environment based, and so when we containerize that application, we're really just containerizing the logic that unit that is running within IIS, and that we can't really containerize. I mean, this would be an intractable problem for any sort of automation. But we can't containerize AD, right? We can't go scoop up that AD endpoint and then all of its backing, you know, credentials and whatever. We have no idea how to do that. Well, we can use all that, but anyway, that's. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, just keeping keeping the world somewhat sane for a moment, right? Is, is that is that an example of what you're talking about? Where you know, I, I think I think what you're saying is, you know, this does a lot, but does it's not it's not a tool that you you basically put on autopilot and it does everything for you. At the end of the day, it's going to spit out a Docker file, it's going to find your ports, it's going to do some things, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you as a as the maintainer of this of this service or this piece of code have to apply some level of, of human oversight and you say, well, actually, we do use AD integrated off. And that's not going to work unless we figure out how to provide that endpoint to the containerized version of this app. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I think uh, no, the tool does the heavy lifting. It does most of the work. Anymore. So you don't need to start from the scratch. You don't need to go build all, everything right now manually. So it does the heavy lifting. It uses the framework. It uses all the templates. So now as a, as a user, when you run through your test, like now they would the same test that you've been running for the, uh, the application that are running locally, the same test that you want to run against this application or container image. So then you catch a lot of those things that are probably missing. And then, you know, you fix those things. So all these templates are easily editable. Like, you know, every step, like, you know, you go through the, uh, the CLI process. Between each of those steps, you could, uh, you know, when you do the analysis, the analysis comes back with like a whole JSON file and you can go add stuff or remove stuff whatever makes sense based on your testing and then recreate the image and then go through the process. So yes, I mean, you know, it is really important. Like sim simple applications, it's maybe like just a simple containerization is done, like the demo that I'm going to do, right? But in uh, in real world, there may be like, you know, some uh, complex dependency that you have to manage. So you want to make sure those things are taken care of before you go to production. Absolutely. Well, I think we need to see a demo because, you know, what you're talking about here potentially save a lot of time and I think everyone's wondering what it looks like to use it. Yeah, so let me share my screen. So just a couple of quick things and I know I, I think we touched upon this. So the app to container, uh, you know, container supports like different kinds of workload. Your source could be coming from my local machine or local you know, the on-premise server or maybe running it in VM or it could be an EC2 or it could be any other cloud, right? Whatever is the source, a .NET application or Java application. Uh, sorry, ASP.NET application running on IS server or Java application running on Spring Boot or Tomcat or Tabox, WebSphere, WebLogic. So all those applications uh, are supported through the Apple container. And then the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Apple container can take that and then you can create or uh, register the, the app in the ECR and then work through the, uh, you know, the, the required either ECS or EKS and, and create uh, the code pipelines and so forth. So what I'm going to show in the, in the demo in a little bit is like basically walk through these spaces, right? These are the commands that are supported in the, the uh, uh, command line tool. So initialize, you know, configure, then the inventory, create the inventory, look at the inventory, analyze, 
containerized generic deployment task definitions uh, and then you know kind of repeat through those steps one quick thing about the split mode i mean you know some situation customers don't want to run you know the containerization tool on the production server if they they don't have a staging server right in those kind of situations we, we they could use what is called split mode where they can run the application uh, the uh, the uh, the the inventory analyze uh, on the uh, machine where the application is running. Once that is done, they can uh, do the rest of the, the load in a worker uh, machine. So there, you know, it can take that uh, JSON file and then it can work through and containers that it in uh, as features. So those are the things you could do. So I have two applications. Let's see. Uh, okay, I have a Windows application, like an ASP.NET application and a Java application. So maybe I'll go through this Java application. So here, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm running a, a Tomcat application. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to quickly check what version of Java I'm running. So it's 1.7. It's out of support. We know that it's it's outdated. Uh, it's not necessarily that it has to be 1.7, but it's 1.8. And I have a, an application running in my uh, Tomcat server locally. It's, it's a it's a uh, Elastic Bean application, like you're probably familiar with this, you know, the Snake uh, application. So. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for uh, you know, what, what, what classes are currently running and just quickly do the uh, services that are currently running. So I see that uh, there's, there's one uh, service. So I'm running in the Cloud9 environment. The good thing about this Cloud9 environment is I can quickly go and preview the application that I'm running. So I just want to show the, the, the local application that I'm running in my mesh to look at the application itself. So it, it's a Beanstalk application. Uh, you, know, with the, you, know, you can look through the application and see now, you know, it's the snake. It's a pretty cool application uh, if you've not seen it before. So this is a Java application that's currently running in my in my local machine. So I want to take this application and now containerize it and move to the uh, uh, cloud, right? So I go to the the other shell uh, with the root access. So what first thing I need to do to do the uh, the initialization, right? So here, so I run through the uh, the init command from the object container. So so in this init command, what it does is it configures the environment that I'm running. So I just take a look, you know, the default ones, so the workspace directory, I'll use the local one. The AWS profile, I'll use the default one. So S3 bucket, uh, you know, if you are going to deploy, you need to provide the S3 bucket that you are going to use AWS. If not, you know, if you containerize it in local, you know, put it in the local environment. So you can just use the default. So the, uh, you know, reporting the metrics, uh, that's great. Uh, do that. And then the, uh, you know, so currently not going to use the, take the default now for the uh, trusty thing. So the configuration is same. So the initialization is done. The tool is ready to be used. So the first command, as we talked about earlier, so we want to do the inventory of the applications. Like, you know, I want to see how many applications are currently running in my environment. So I only have one uh, application, the Java Tomcat, you know, it is the application ID. In general, there could be multiple applications running, but uh, today in, in my environment, I only have one application. So uh, what ne the next step I want to do is I want to be able to go deep into that application and understand the uh, complete dependency of that application. The process we are following here, it's the same thing for the uh, ASP.NET applications. It's just the you know, same commands. You know, there's no difference in, uh, in what we're following here. So, so I take the uh, the application ID and uh, that's the ID that I'm using here and run through the application. It's pretty quick. It came back quickly and uh, it showed and it also shows the next steps after your analysis. Analysis is successful. Now you can do the next few steps. So the analysis of JSON is the file that has all the details about the, the dependencies, the network dependencies, and all of the stuff. And the next command that you will be using is the you know the uh, the containers command. 
So before that, let's take a look at uh, what's there in the analysis chart, right? So this is a pretty uh, detailed file that shows a lot of details about, you know, the command line, you know, the variables that were used and, you know, some of the, uh, you, know, you know, the dependencies, like maybe the, uh, the libraries that are used in for the application. So it's a pretty extensive thing and you have an opportunity to remove and uh, add stuff there. Choose to, if you want to exclude some files and so forth, right? So now the next thing is we want to you know, first extract the, all those dependencies, right? So what this extract command does is it, it creates a tar file by picking up all those dependencies that you have for your application, right? Once that application, uh, you know, the tar file is created, so then it becomes easy for the, uh, the containerized command to go through and, uh, you know, create a containerized image. So one of the things that you need to uh, do before you containerize is you need to know which you know, base image that you want to use. So currently in my machine, I have the, uh, the, the, the Amazon Linux uh, base machine, you know, the image. But if you choose to use something else, like a lot of enterprises are standardized on a specific image, you can always have that as a, an option. And now that what I'm going to do is I'm going to call, you know, do the containerized thing, containerized command. So it goes through, it takes a few minutes. So once that is done, so it comes back to us, it's uh, successful. Now when you look at the list of uh, images, I can see the, uh, the images that is created just a few minutes ago. So it's built on top of the, uh, the Amazon Linux and it takes the applications and uh, puts it on top of it with the JVM, all of the stuff that is needed with all the dependencies, libraries that you uh, asked for. It's fully containerized and now that application is uh, ready for the next stage. So you have a way to optimize it. Think the size is big and you can go back and I know if you know certain things that should not be included in the image, you can go to JSON file and I know fine-tune it and do a lot of those things. So the next thing is I want to generate all the, the deployments, right? So I use the uh, generate app deployment uh, command. It goes through and uh, generates all the, uh, the, the deployment artifacts that are needed. So so here uh, it's a pretty quick talking. So you look at the artifacts. In the deployment file, you go and you look at the uh, the environment that we are using, I'm currently targeting the ECS. That's where I want to uh, put, and it's, you know, by default, it's going to be like two CPUs and like, like memory usage. One of the things that I'm going to be looking for is like, you know, a VPC uh, so that, you know, I know that I want to push, push it into one of my environments. So it's something that I want to add there, uh, you know, the, the VPC ID. So the, the, the one that I have in my, my EC2, that's the one thing that I want to configure. So once I, that I configure, now it's ready to be uh, deployed. So this is the deployment artifacts. So this is great. So I save this file, the deployment JSON. Now I go uh, to the next uh, stage, which is really uh, deployment. So you know, I'll just uh, submit uh, now to a deploy command, the whole thing. And now it's going to go through and it's you know, taking the, uh, the container, pushing it to the uh, EC2. So now we can go to the, uh, the console and see while it is trying to deploy the, uh, the application. So it's going to take a few minutes because you know, we are connecting PCS and going through the whole process. Then you can go to your uh, cloud formation in your console and you can look at the, uh, the, the, the deployments that are currently going through. You'll see two uh, in, in progress. One is the standalone, the other one is nested based on the configuration that you provided. So it takes a few minutes you know, for, for it to complete. So you know you, you can see that in progress, once it's done, it says it's uh, done. So now you can go back to uh, the console. Okay, now it's done. So once it is done, so you get the, uh, the load balancer uh, endpoint. So you use that endpoint. So that's where the application is now running. Okay. Remember, this is the containerized application. It's running inside EC2, inside ECS. 
So that's where sure this is the same application what you saw in my local machine earlier. Now it's uh, like not fully containerized with a few steps that I went through. So now it's running in the cloud right, as, a, as a same application, right? I mean, again, it's a, you know, it's a, for a, you know, a normal application, it's all good, but you know, in some situations you had to go through a lot of testing before you do the, uh, the thing. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to stop here. The, the next steps I think you can also do is you can create the, uh, the, the cloud artifacts and the cloud deploy. And, you know, and, you know, so it will generate all the, the, the pipelines uh, and it will integrate seamlessly with the AWS environment. So now you can go and seamlessly manage those things. So, so that's what I wanted to show. I mean, what is saw is like, you know, the, the application that is like currently running on my local machine. It's the same thing for ASP.NET applications or Java applications. Go through a few steps and then it takes it and you know, containerizes and you know, put it into either ECS or EKS environment seamlessly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a lot end to end, right? But I think that if we really frame this as you know, what is the alternative? What is the status quo for modernizing and containerizing applications for .NET and Java? We see that that is something that would not have been able to be covered in, you know, like a 10, 15 minute walkthrough like you described right there, right? We, we talked a little bit before about the, you know, the uh, roadblocks or the, the significant hurdles to containerizing applications. And really, if we just break it down into the handful of discrete steps, I know we jumped around a bit between the AWS console and, you know, your IDE where you were showing us a little bit of the config, a little bit of the, the application itself or, or, you know, starting up the Tomcat application. Really, you just have a handful of discrete steps. And again, this is very much a garden path for a set of applications for .NET and Java. But, you know, you have your application running on your, your deployed infrastructure. You install the after container CLI, you profile the applications that are running through a CLI command, you select the application that you want, app to container will then generate the necessary artifacts, and then app to container also helps you to deploy that application with said artifacts to the cloud. Now, this is again not didn't seem entirely hands-off, right? We still walked through some of those configurations and 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 understood what those are, but when I think about sort of this set of challenges to containerizing and then deploying, we basically have narrowed the scope of the things that you as a developer need to learn and understand to go from zero to one from this very, very, very large mountain of, of, of methods and, and, and objects and entities to a, a much smaller sort of surface area, which seems a lot more approachable to me. That, that's right. I mean, it also helps with the scale and now you can take on more applications and with the limited skill sets that you have within the organization. I mean, there are very few cloud experts who can do all these things manually. So now you are kind of really enabling the common developers to kind of take advantage of this and move the applications faster to the uh, cloud. Awesome. Yeah. I think this is going to work really well for the, the kind of applications that, that you're targeting here. Great. Well, you know, this is very exciting to me. And again, it is still very much early days for After Container, right? We uh, launched earlier on this week or, or the week prior, shortly before this episode, essentially. And it, it seems like there's there's a lot of things I can imagine I want to see down the road from something like this. I guess if we're opening up that discussion around potential future features or, or, or roadmap where applicable, something that I would like to see is, you know, more language expansion, right? I think that when we started this conversation around, you know, what is the value of containerization? What are these roadblocks that exist? I, I know we, we dove deep on Java and .NET and, and a lot of the functionality already um, that we saw in the service or in the tool is is centered around that but you know 
I think that value around containerizing applications exists cross language. And, and so not only is extending the functionality or the feature sets for .NET and Java important, but I, I'm excited to see this hopefully someday for, for lots of other languages as well. Because one could argue that some of these languages that are more prevalent nowadays maybe have a, a broader set of resources to, to enable containerization. But I still think that this sort of you know, uh, experience of going through a CLI and just in a few discrete steps, being able to pop out a containerized application and, auto, and, and easily deploy that to the cloud, that's, that's a really enticing value proposition. So I'm excited to see, to see that down the line. Absolutely. I mean, when we work with our customers, we try to understand, like, you know, where, where, where their real pain points are, like, you know, the, the, the kind of applications, like .NET applications, like, you know, they, they, they don't see a way forward. Like, you know, they really need some help on some of the, you know, the, the existing Java applications running on the like, for a long time. I think those are the applications they really wanted us to help with. So that's the one we picked up as a starting point. And some of the other languages we mentioned, like, you know, some of them are already probably, uh, you know, the modern, so they don't, Need a big modernization support, but uh, to, to your point, you know, kind of accelerating the containerization process, it's a big value for even those applications too. We definitely are very looking forward to, uh, you know, kind of expanding the support, adding more and more languages, and you know, kind of, you know, even the targets, like for example, today we're supporting deployment to uh, ECS and EKS, you know, to, you know, there may be additional uh, targets like Apache you know, or Lambda. You know, and also there's other opportunities that we can expand into, like, you know, how do we take these applications, like big monolithic applications, can we kind of break this down and create more microservices kind of architectures and containerize each of those services? I think there are a lot of possibilities. I mean, you know, I think that in my opinion, the modernization is not a done thing. It's a continuous thing. It's there's going to be a continuous modernization throughout our lifetime. Yeah. Again, as, as new technologies and deployment vectors uh, come into play, you know, the need to be able to transport applications in the way that they're authored or the way they they already exist onto these new platforms uh, is going to be an ongoing battle. I think that's uh, very well said. And, and you know, even to the point before around the value of Docker being build once and deploy anywhere is something that you know even Java had you know a lot of claim to fame around. And, and you know what becomes easy or what is the easiest solution uh, is not just subjective, but will change over time as these new technologies are released. So. Well put in that it's sort of this ongoing battle, but hopefully it doesn't feel just like a battle, but this ongoing ability to optimize and deliver more value over time, right? Like we wouldn't be worrying about these things if there wasn't an upside to them. So hopefully no, no, uh, the sque- the juice will be worth the squeeze. Uh, you just have to sort of find the way to get there. Cool. Well, I think that about does it for us in this session. We have a little bit we're going to close out on after this, but again, Prakash, lead PM on application modernization, talking to us a little bit about App2Container. And so if folks want to get started with App2Container, again, it's a CLI. You can go and install it, get get started with it. We have links to both the Jeff Barr blog post, product page, and the documentation. We will get those thrown in chat. I know a lot of people have been also asking about whether this video will be available after the fact. By default, right after this episode's over, it'll be available here on our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash AWS slash videos. Additionally, we'll be uploading this to YouTube and we even have a podcast. So if you'd prefer to be listening to something like this, you can find us on a lot of the major podcasting platforms. If you need links, we'll try and... By the way, the the, the tool is free. There's no fee for this. Yeah. So again, it's a CLI. It's free. Install it. Do it. Do with it what you wish. And many of the target or all of the target deployment vectors right now currently for those uh, artifacts in addition to the Docker file are 
AWS oriented things like ECS, uh, task definitions, networking, configuration files, and so on. Awesome. Well, thank you, Prakash. Sit tight. We've got just a few minutes left in the show. It's the coziest part of every episode where we close out and talk a little bit about what we have on the horizon for the show. But, you know, it's been a long episode. So, Rob, why don't you remind me, what did we cover? Because I, I think I'm starting to lose it. It's so many things we talk about in the show. Yeah, well, I mean, as far as the demos go, we looked at CodeGuru and the two major components of CodeGuru, the profiler, which is a sampling profiler, as well as the reviewer. And then we saw demos of both of those, of course. And then we, we also took a deep dive into App2Container. Yeah, some exciting stuff. Uh, it's all coming back to me now. But um, <laughs> we, we uh, you know, again, what's next? The show where we try to cover all of these launches in, in depth. We bring the service team members on. We try to get those demos so that you can see most tangibly what it's going to look like for you to use the service. I, I know it's great to see some of these launches on the reInvent stage uh, or, or you know, whatever the main stage or the big announcements and the videos that come along with them. But I think that as a developer, the thing that I care about the most is what is this going to look like for me to use it? Does it work for the workloads that I need them to work for? And uh, is this something that's too scary for me to ever you know, get my feet wet with? And hopefully, you know, some of those demos help to answer some of those questions that folks have. But it, it is time for the thing that we do at the end of every single episode. I know it's silly, but when I when I think about you know the launches that we cover, this is something that that no other no other launch channel does. No, no, you don't see us at the end of the blogs. Andy Jassy doesn't get up at the end of the reinvent keynote and go like, "All right, I'm going to play the game that Nick and Rob play on What's Next and string all these launches together." But it always makes it a little more tangible for me. So we play this game. We don't have a name for it yet, right? We don't need a name for it, I don't think. Or we can come up with one as the, as the need demands. Okay, all right. And audience, if you have any ideas for this game, yeah. uh, please throw them in there. We, we would love to get those uh, thrown in. We will give you credit, I, I promise. I won't just steal all your questions and ask them like I do on the show. But what we do is we take all the launches that we saw a demo from in a given episode, and we try to imagine what the ideal company or, or customer or developer would be for this episode. So the, the prompt I give is like, if you were building an application... And you saw this episode and you see all those launches that happened. What would your application look like if you were the, this was your ideal episode, right? And so it's, it's always a silly game. We punt it back and forth between the guests or the, the two hosts. And we try to come up with this, this application of this, this outline of what this customer would look like. So again, Rob mentioned the launches CodeGuru, which includes, let's say, profiler and reviewer as two separate aspects for the, for the sake of this demo and uh, app to container. So this one, I don't know, this one's pretty broad, right? On other weeks, we've had topics that could be a little more niche, maybe centered around very particular use cases. Uh, but this one, I feel like we have so many ways we can go with, right? Yeah, well, let, let's get let's get Chad involved in this. I mean, so the again, the ask is, the two major things that we covered today are CodeGuru and App2Container. How would you combine those to build something really cool? So it's, it's almost like a Iron Chef, these are the two secret ingredients. So... Nick, what do you think? I, I had a funny but like almost like rule breaking <laughs> answer here. I was gonna I was gonna wonder if you could use CodeGuru static reviewer or analyzer to like lint the Docker files that App to Container generates to like quality check how good App to Container is. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I had a, a very similar idea. I, I mean, we saw. Um, Nikunj gave us that, that one slide where he showed all the different axes of, of things that the reviewer will look for. And I think one of those axes in the future could be portability. Mm. 
we can fold portability directly into CodeGuru Reviewer, and it can just run the compatibility analyzer. Why not, right? And it can just say like, hey, you know, in this this uh, this pull request, while it seems to be, you know, hopefully you've tested it, it does functionally what you think it's going to do, but you're making this very interesting API call that depends on a native Windows API. So for the, the, the best example is, you know, process.execute, right? Process.execute is going to, going, uh, it's, it's basically going to look for a local dependency. And at the point at which you encode it in a string, no tooling will be able to figure that out. It's the equivalent of like a JavaScript eval statement, right? And I'm sure the portability analyzer can find that. It'd be really cool if the code reviewer can say, if you do this, you're not going to be able to import the app in the future. We can't guarantee that it's going to be able to run in a container. Are you sure you want to do this? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point. I mean, because at the end of the day, like containers are only as portable as the dependencies that they have or what you're injecting into them, right? Like you can have this portable application that's really just your entire Windows operating system with everything under the sun under it. But, you know, is that scalable in, in, in an optimized fashion? I, I guess the jury is out or that's up to you to decide that. But... I mean, we, we spoke about how the CodeGuru team runs CodeGuru Profiler on CodeGuru Profiler. So this, this concept of dogfooding or, or antagonistically using AWS services to measure other AWS services is uh, not, not too unheard of. So yeah, maybe, maybe this one isn't exactly one customer, but it's just a, you know, in the Iron Chef example, it's like using one ingredient in I, I don't know. Yeah. It's uh sorry, I'm, I'm breaking down the analogy now at this point, but uh no, this was this was definitely an interesting one. I also think the do- eating your own dog food or, or going meta with these services is more common than you think, right? Because uh, I am is a really great example. I am itself uses I am, so it's you know it's not it, it actually comes up quite often, right? I mean, Watchtower uses Watchtower, so lots of things. They uh, I think and I think this happens because you know these services their uh, their their charter is so broad. They solve a broad problem, and so they themselves, by being virtue of, of piece of software that has to do all these things uses itself. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very interesting point. I, I'm trying to think of off the top of my head other services that could potentially do this in a way on the concept of like anomaly detection. It's like, uh, you know, does the CloudWatch anomaly detection service, does it use CloudWatch anomaly detection to detect when the logs of the service running anomaly detection is 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 in in alarm state, for example, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, we talk about this a lot, right? Like, especially these higher level services that use underlying services, right? So I know that that like differing level of abstraction is not necessarily the the, the case that we're talking about here today. But when we try to understand behaviors and, and dependencies of, of, of high level services on lower level services, these things oftentimes come out hopefully for the better, right? If you if you develop a product like like you meant, you pointed to IAM, right? If you really have a good and sound abstraction, you don't need these, I, I guess, these equivalents of like CSS statements with like a bang important on top of them and just squash that other abstraction to work for this use case. Um, the, these interlocking and interdependent services at varying levels of, of abstraction just go to show how, how sort of like battle-tested some of them can be. So that's, that's always good to see. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well... I guess it was a little bit easier also this week because we only had in in reality two launches, right? The third is really the wild card, right? I feel like it's always easy for us to, to find two of the three, put them together, and it's always the third that that gets you. Um, but we, we got. Well, I also also feel like you know today, although although I think we we kind of tricked the audience because we said there are only two launches, but in reality there were really three launches. In another world, 
you know, the, the code guru profiler and the code guru reviewer could be totally separate services. Yeah. It's just that they have to share an umbrella services. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if we then raise the question, like, why are they the same service, right? Like, why not two separate services? And I think that when we try to work backwards from solving customer problems and delivering value, even though the problems being, you know, passive versus active in the software development process and profiling being very different, the core developer value is, is catching bugs earlier on, reducing their blast radius and, you know, allowing your developers to be authoring features instead of dealing with these, these issues. So, you know, when we, when we bubbled up to that, it starts to make a bit more sense. But uh, some housekeeping stuff, we, as we work to close out the stream here, I know there's many people that are probably still following along in Twitch chat. If you are interested in giving us feedback, we'd love to hear it. Anything you'd like to see, anything you saw that you didn't like, uh, anything in between, you know, we'd love to hear it. Uh, and additionally, we actually have our date for the next episode, which is going to be two weeks from now. So today is uh, the 10th. Our next episode is going to be on the 24th of July. Same time, same place, twitch.tv slash AWS and on LinkedIn as well. Let's see, we have a question in chat here. So I guess this this question is actually uh, going back to Apt Container a little bit. Uh, if there are ways to break the new functionality in app to container, like if they port an application, but then the containerized app crashes, will the inventory still report the crashed application? I, I don't know, actually. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think the idea is that for app to container, my perception, Rob, uh, is that it, it's more on the, the, the porting side and not on the continuous monitoring of it. So if the application crashes uh, while it's running in its containerized state, that's that A2C is not as much going to be able to trigger the alarms and generate alarms around that. That sounds like more of a downstream problem. Yeah, that should be pretty easy to do if you just write a really simple app down that application that throws an exception. If you port it, it'll probably port. But what will happen is that the app's container is not doing anything for you with respect to reporting or telemetry. And that'll just, you know, probably what it'll do is just write that out to standard out and then that'll be aggregated by whatever, depending on whether you put in ECS or EKS, will have the, the standard logging capabilities that you can use to look at what happened. Yeah, or even an EC2. You know, it, I know folks yeah. that are new to containerization, there's a whole bound of questions that they may not be familiar with, but you can just pipe that standard out from the container and, and log that and set alarms around that with whatever fashion you would probably do if it was just on an EC2 instance to begin with. Right on. So cool. Yeah, next episode, July 24th at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Same time, same place, same hosts. To my knowledge, Rob and I will hopefully be back here. Again, love the questions. Thank you again to everyone who's tuned in on both Twitch as well as on LinkedIn. Uh, but we also are available as podcasts. So if you're looking to catch up on past episodes, maybe you only got some of the content from today. This is available on many of the major streaming platforms. I think the big ones that I like to listen to are on Spotify, I believe Apple Music as well. But check us out. You can search for that through AWS. What's next on those podcasting platforms? But with that, I guess that's going to close out episode seven. Uh, anything I forgot, Rob? I think that covers it. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you again, everyone who tuned in. We will see you again in two weeks on the 24th. But otherwise, have a great weekend and we will see you soon. Take it easy, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.